Uh, you know what we could start with? We could start with the because uh, this came up on my show uh, two weeks ago with uh, with MG Siegler. Uh, we couldn't figure out how to pronounce your website's name. <laughs> it's pronounced Jif. <laughs> so no, actually, I, I wanted to ask your advice on this because it's it's actually it, it, it is a bit of an ongoing uh, issue. Uh, so you know, I thought I was being very clever, um, and uh, and as I've learned now that I've write you know writing with a bit more of an audience, uh, cleverness does not go far on the web. Um, so I call it a strategery. There is the old Will Ferrell skit where he was being George W. Bush, and they asked him, you know, what's your plan? And he just said strategery, and it was a one-word answer. Um, and so, you know, I was kind of the idea of strategy and tech together, uh, and I loved the the kind of E with the phonetic symbol on top of it, and that's that's my Twitter icon for the site. And and so I'm – but the problem is everyone says strategery, and, and honestly, it makes more sense. But I'm really loath to either A, give up the phonetic, phonetic symbol – or B, pronounce it in opposition to the phonetic symbol. So I, I kind of feel in a bind. Oh, I was hoping for a goddamn answer. Uh, <laughs> if you don't I know, call it but for I anybody, call it strategery, but uh, if you don't know, I, I'm I think talk- I should probably switch. I'm talking to Ben Thompson, and his website is strategery.com. You've certainly seen it if you read my website. I've, I've linked to it many times over the last year. Uh yeah, I, I've guessed that you meant strategery because I see the whatever that's called over the E. But it, uh, yeah, in my head, I've always called it strategery. Yeah, I think I should probably switch it. Um, I, don't, I don't know. I, I, I'm totally doing the GIF joke for my first t shirt, though. I didn't, I never, I never thought of the Will Ferrell angle. I know. I actually, if you if you I actually even have a pronunciation guide in the right bar, which you know no one ever looks at, but if you click it, it actually goes to the Will Ferrell video, huh. um, which is which is fa- remains fantastic. Like ten years later, yeah. See, I yeah, I've never been good at reading those uh, phonetic symbols. Uh, in fact, well, I'm, so- I'm, the only one I know is the schwa. Which is which is my favorite one. Um, so I, I used to be an English teacher. So when I first came to Taiwan, like that's the classic, you know, sort of, you know, I was going to be here for a year, um, you know, travel, teach English. Uh, so I'm very familiar with phonetic symbols, um, and so I thought it was kind of amusing to have them have them there. But yes, lo and behold, no one actually knows what the fuck they are. So um, is is this an explicit show or a clean show? I can't remember. I never mark it explicit, but we let them fly. Nobody ever. No, it's funny. Nobody complains. I don't know. I'll probably get inundated <laughs> complaints and, and have iTunes take it down off the store this week. Yeah. So when you submit a new podcast, they like they, there's a, allegedly a review process, but right. and they say it'll take like a week, but it actually comes back in like two hours. And there's like there's no there's no way they actually listen to right. anything. Uh, and there's you know I I don't know what is the mo- the record for swear words in an episode of the show but whatever it is it's not that bad it, oh no i don't think the the sweariest show that i've done is is that bad well considering um, the show's usually like two hours too the like ratio of swear words to minute has to be relatively low I, i'm working on cutting that down and last week's show was only an hour this show, this week's show will be short we'll be done in half an hour all right yeah i, I don't have much to say um <laughs> i also think it would be funny there are it's times 
if you do it right, it can be very funny if you swear but bleep. Uh, but it's it's more editing work. Well, what was the what was the thing where they were adding bleeps? Oh yeah, like that whole like oh, what was that show that all the controversy or whatever. Um, like I've never even heard of it in my life, but the guy made some like homophobic remarks. Um, and apparently, one thing they were really irritated is that the network was adding bleeps to the show that weren't actually swear words. They're trying to like make it more interesting. Oh, was it the Duck Dynasty thing? Yes, yes, oh, that's what it was. They were bleeping out non-swear. <laughs> Uh, see, that's funny. Uh, Jerry, I don't know if you ever heard it, dude. There's a Adam Sandler song from, oh my God, it must be the late nineties called piece of shit car. Yes. I'm familiar. It's like a reggae song. And the first time my, I never, we, we always laugh. It was just one of those things we'll never forget. I, I don't know where we were driving, but it was just me and my wife in the car and it came on and it was all bleeped out. <laughs> and and we just assumed that the it was so funny with the bleeps that we just assumed that that's what it was. And in fact, no, it was you know that was the radio edited, but it was it was just riddled with them. But because everything rhymed, you knew what they all were, and <laughs> and it really worked. Like the swear words all hit on the rhymes. So like it 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 actually was and i'm not a prude at all i don't i didn't think i don't think you know it needs to be bleeped out for you know our precious little children's ears or anything but it was actually way funnier than than the original well it's like when those things right like it's uh you know weaving just a little bit to the imagination makes it that much more alluring right exactly or the old trick you could pull where if you write a little uh i said you know i was punk ass kid and write this stupid uh four-line poem where the last line is clearly leading you know the rhyme is going to end on a swear word but then you pick some other word yes and then you just, and then and, and then when someone reads it and remarks on it you're like that that's not what i was going for at all yeah, what, kind did, of foul, what kind of foul intentions do you have yeah uh, i was such an asshole uh it wasn't <laughs> uh Wait, we could start with this whole WhatsApp thing, obviously. I mean, it's because – what do you understand this? Now, when it was first reported that, that Facebook bought these guys, that it was $16 billion, and then it went up to $19 billion? Do you know what yeah, – Well, the $3 billion is uh, basically restricted stock units for the employees of WhatsApp. It's a very, very strong golden handcuff, basically, to keep them in the company. And um, so it, there's – theoretically possible that they won't be exercised and then it would be a $16 billion deal. But given how lucrative they are and the fact that they should be, you know, easily, they should be converted. It's, I think from a, like more of a VC perspective, it's probably more of a $16 billion deal. Like everyone I knew in VC was calling it that. And then everyone else is calling it 19. I think it's fair to call it a $19 billion deal. I mean, but the deal was for, is it 16 billion in cash? Is no, that right? no, 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 no. There's, uh, I don't remember the exact numbers, but it's a, it's three parts. It's the restricted stock units, and then it's cash, and then it's uh, Facebook stock. All right. So but that's the other thing too. I mean, Facebook stock is super high right now, so they're they're, oh, they have a lot of headroom to to make these sort of acquisitions, and that's that's one of the advantages of having an IPO and having stock. You know, there's tons of downsides to you know as we see we see with Apple a lot. But the you get a lot of monopoly money to play with, um, right. and they're taking advantage. Um, it it's such a crazy high number, 
you know, like somebody, you know, a couple people have pointed out, and there's a whole Tumblr, uh, you know, things that are worth yeah. less than uh, WhatsApp. Uh, uh, I, I should fire that up and just see what's on there. Isn't Sony? Isn't Sony's market cap less than? I think uh, I was looking at it today, so it should come up right away. Um, yeah, things that are che- things that are cheaper than WhatsApp.tumblr.com. <laughs> so yeah, forty years the National Cancer Institute, the NBA, <laughs> yeah, that's the Hubble Space Institute, the top twenty football clubs. Right. So the 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 estimated market value of every single team in the National Basketball Association is less than sixteen billion or nineteen, whatever you want to call it. I don't know, but either way, yeah, th- they're using nineteen billion on this site, right? So, uh. It seems crazy to me. I mean, some of this, it, it, you know, I don't know. I mean, it's, you know, maybe it's right. And maybe it's just the way that the human mind plays tricks on you. But like, yeah, exactly. American Airlines. <laughs> There's a perfect example. Like, I hate American Airlines. Really? <laughs> I, I've, I think, well, I think I've only flown on American once in my life. And it was terrible. I'm pretty sure. And if it's not once, it's twice. <laughs> Well, my favorite, my favorite on here is Iceland, <laughs> the entire country. <laughs> I mean, if you want to get a lot of communication, you you can put a bunch of people on Iceland and uh, you know monetize that. So it is hard. It's hard to grasp numbers like that because we're talking. You know, it's it's a big number, and you know, I'm just a, a normal guy who carries you know hundred dollars in his wallet. So. Um, it's a big number. Uh, yeah, I don't think it's. I mean, that I was initially like. I mean, I uh, got the message via a messenger app, WeChat. In this case, um, I was laying in bed. Uh, my you know time zones are obviously off, and uh, my first connection was like, "Whoa!" Um, but when you kind of dig into it, um, if you look at like a per a per user number. Uh, it's like $40 per user, which is actually relatively cheap. Um, you know, a Facebook user, according to the stock market, is worth like $160. Uh, Twitter user is is worth um, quite a bit, you know, less than Facebook, but somewhere in the middle there. Uh, and like Facebook bought Instagram, which looks like a great deal now. Uh, same, same reaction then. People are like, holy crap, a yeah, billion dollars. $1 billion, dollars, right. Right. And people are like, wow. But at this, but they, they, paid, they paid like $30 per user. And now everyone's like, wow, what a great deal that was. Um, and WhatsApp is in, you know, $40 per user isn't that much more. Um, you know, actually, the, it raises in my mind a bigger question about, like, say, Skype, where Microsoft paid $70 per user. Right. Um, but the, the point is, in on that sort of metric, um, it's actually not outrageous. Uh, I mean, it's difficult, I think, to understand the scale of WhatsApp itself. It is by a significant margin, the second largest social network in the world. Um, second only you know, to? Second to Facebook. Right. I mean, Facebook's 1.2 billion, right. and WhatsApp is 450 million. And it's 450 million active users. Right. Like, there's lots of networks that are have tons of active users well, and, or tons of registered users. And if you want to value things as what are you paying per active user – and and you know active user is definitely an important metric because there's an awful lot and I know that WhatsApp's n- numbers for active users you know is is really really high it's something like seventy percent of the people who've signed up are active users and so active they daily yeah and so they can just that's the number they actually use 
You know, they don't they don't have to t- brag about how many accounts they have or, you you know, users, period, and sort of, you know, whitewash the fact that there's a whole bunch of them who've been inactive for 90 days or something like that. They just talk about daily active users, and it's a really high number. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's also clear if you look at the graph of uh, – or any graph of like the number of messages they're sending or the number of users they're sending or the number of signups they're getting daily, that it's it's got to be an even lower number than 40 or $45 per user because no matter what happens after this announcement, you know, in the next couple of months, clearly they're still signing up for the next, for the, let's just say half a year, next year, they're signing up somewhere around a million people a day. Yeah. Someone, there's a graph comparing the like first first four years of WhatsApp to Facebook to Twitter to to these different Gmail. And, uh, you know, someone quipped that this is the first time that Facebook was ever willing to show a graph that showed them getting destroyed right. because WhatsApp is growing at like four times the pace that that Facebook was. Right. And I think it's this is the key to like to the, really... the, the graph, the hockey stick part of the graph is still going up. On right, growth. exactly. It, it, They're not, it's even... not even close to leveling off. It's accelerating. So I think it's easily... You know, it, they if they're at four hundred and some million now, it's easy to think that a year from now they might be at seven or eight, nine hundred million. Totally, and, totally, and I think that um, you know, there's there the one thing to remember is these kind of deals where you're buying a a accelerating service, like there's they actually usually turn out pretty well. I mean, everyone was scandalized by Google buying YouTube for three billion dollars, like. That's a massive steal in retrospect. Right. Same thing with Instagram. Same thing with back in the '90s, Microsoft buying Hotmail for like four hundred million dollars was like the hugest acquisition in you know at that time. Um, it, it was actually turned out to also be forty dollars a user. Uh, and like these these sort of deals where you're buying uh, a exploding viral networked sort of service tend to turn out pretty well. It's the ones that are more kind of like you know, bank shot deals where lots of things have to go right for them to turn out that tend to not turn out so well. And so from that perspective, I, I think it's okay. The other thing is like messaging is a, and I've been, you know, I've been on this for a while. I think part of it's because I'm in Asia, like messaging is a really big deal. It's a way bigger deal than, than Facebook was on the PC. It's, it is the thing on mobile. Like it, it dominates usage, absolutely dominates usage in every market except for the U.S. And if you remember, U.S. was slow to SMS too. So I, I think that's part of the kind of the bewilderment. Um, but I, I think it's a justified deal in my opinion. All right, I'm going to play devil's advocate. And I'm going to say, I, I'm going to argue here. I, I'm, I don't necessarily believe it, but for the sake of argument here, I'm, I'm going to push a more common sense accounting look at this so let's say they've they've paid forty dollars a user and let's say that i'm right and even as a uh, let's say for the sake of this argument that i'm a i'm a downer on this deal but even so i've got to admit that you've got to be looking at let's say 800 million users on whatsapp eventually because of the growth that they're seeing Mm -hmm. and the way that these things spread socially where you know if three four of your friends are using it it there's you know, significant pressure to download this free app that definitely runs on your phone because they run on just about any phone that can do IP networking. Um, 
so let's call it $20 a user, right? Let's just mm-hmm. say $20 a user. How the hell do they make $20 per user back from them? And if they don't, how can it possibly be worth the money? Because they've already promised no ads and they've said that it's eventually they're going to charge a dollar a user. So one, I think 800 million is extremely conservative. I, I would bet you, and I'd gladly put money on this, that within five years, WhatsApp will have many more users than Facebook, the product itself. Um, so that lowers the price that much more. Um, two, if you were to ask me in isolate, so the three really big messaging players are WhatsApp, uh, Line out of Japan, and uh, WeChat in China. If you were to ask me like on a standalone basis, which of those companies is worth the most, uh, I would have trouble putting WhatsApp ahead because they don't have any real monetization strategy. Uh, you know, whereas Line and WeChat have very developed uh, strategies that are actually really, really interesting from a business perspective. Can I can I ask you an honest question? I mean, yes. and this is how how big a dummy I am. How do you spell WeChat? W e c h a t. Is the C capitalized? <laughs> it is. It is. Okay, so that's um, China. Line is Japan. Line is Japan, but but Line is Line dominates here in Taiwan. It dominates Japan. Um, it dominates Thailand, uh, and then. They're fighting it out in Vietnam. It's, it's definitely a, a Asian sort of uh, phenomena. Um, but anyhow, the point being like what – yes, you're right. From looking at it from a pure making money on it, it's not totally clear. Uh, but this is why it's so interesting that Facebook bought them. Number one, like Facebook, the company, doesn't need WeChat to monetize right away. Like Facebook is like cleaning up right now when it comes to monetization. Like they're just they're crushing it like quarter by quarter, like the last for the last year. So they can they like if they don't make a dime on we on WeChat, like they're going to be okay because their main product is doing so well for the definitely for the next couple of years. So they've got they've got some funny money because their stock their after their IPO is really high. Investors are very keen on Facebook. I, the last I checked, their PE ratio was somewhere around one hundred and ten. Right. Um, um, and it's, it's, it's honestly, it's pretty justified given the, like the rate of growth that their revenue has right now. Right. Cause they have, they do have real revenue and profits and, and it's, I would say it's probably, they're probably either in line or, or exceeding expectations and not expectations like the stupid thing we do every freaking quarter with, uh, with Apple where it's, you know, these quarter by quarter estimates, but just the ballpark, you know, the longer term thinking, like before even the IPO of how's Facebook going to make money. And it's, yep. you know, there was, you know, well, they could do this and this and they could, you know, really, you know, they could bring in so much advertising per quarter per user. Uh, and they're, they're, they're doing that. It's yeah, a real, no, I think that's exactly right. They're, they're, and they're beating it. Like right. they're certainly being my expectations for whatever it's worth. Um, and so given that, like presuming that they're they're fine as a business, you can say, okay, then why why even bother with this? Why why you know throw away nineteen billion dollars when your main business is doing fine? Well, the the big question is like three or four years down the road, when if I'm right, um, messaging is the dominant sort of interaction model, and Facebook has tapped out kind of their growth. Then what? At that point, WeChat or uh, WhatsApp is going to cost is worth what a hundred billion dollars, two hundred billion dollars. Like if you They're believe unviable. that, exactly. And, and 
19 billion is on the edge of unbuyable as it is. Right. So if they were ever going to get into this space, they tried. They tried with Messenger. And like the reality is, you know, except for the US, Messenger is getting its rear end kicked all over the world. Um, like this was the last chance to buy in into 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 this area. And but, I think in that context, it's option value. But I uh, I think it was Forbes who reported that last year WhatsApp had twenty million dollars in revenue. Yep. No, it, they're not buying WhatsApp for their current business model. Right. Like they're they're buying WhatsApp for one the users and two the option value of messaging being the dominant form of social networking in the future, which I happen to subscribe to and believe is the case. And the thing is, like, Line and WeChat are crushing it also from a monetization standpoint. So it's, it is it is definitely possible to monetize this way. They don't do it via display ads. Like, they do it, like, through, like, the stickers is a thing. It's, it's only, like, 20% of revenue. But they do it. It's a fascinating, like, direct marketing channel. Dude, I, I will go to the mat on stickers. All right. Awesome. Well, let's go to the mat on stickers. Let me take a break. <laughs> Let me take a break and, and, and talk about our first sponsor. We've had them before, but it's been a while, and I'm happy to welcome back as a sponsor of the show, Warby Parker. Now, Warby Parker is a new concept in eyewear. Really, it's just a basic disruption story where there was a, uh, one of the founders was, was traveling away from home. His glasses broke. He had to get them fixed and, uh, or had to get a new pair, and it was like six or $700 for a new pair of eyeglasses. And he was like, this is stupid. This should not cost this much. Um, Shouldn't, you shouldn't have to pay three or four hundred dollars for a new pair of eyeglasses uh, just to get a pair that looks good. So you know what they did? Started a business where they make uh, vintage-inspired, contemporary, stylish eyeglasses uh, that start at ninety-five dollars, and it's no bullshit. It's none of this stuff where you have to pay extra money to get. Uh, to get the good lenses, to get the anti-glare coating and stuff like that. Because who doesn't want that? Everybody wants it. The regular glasses from Warby Parker come with everything you need. And they have uh, an amazing system for how to get them. Because you think, well, how, do, how why do you want to buy glasses over the internet? How are you going to tell how they look? They have a thing called the Home Try-On Program. You go to their website. You pick five pairs that you are interested in. Uh They'll ship you the empty frames uh, to your house, and it's beautiful packaging, really nice. You try them on, look in the mirror, see what you like, take a picture, show it to your friends, let your uh, let your spouse uh, tell you which one looks best on you. Send them back, and you'll get the one that you want uh, back to your house. Uh, super easy. You get five pairs to try at home of your choice. Pick the one you like. Ship them all back, and they'll send you uh, the ones that you picked out. And here's the thing. They have a great, great charity program. Uh, almost a billion people worldwide lack access to prescription glasses or prescription uh, lenses for their glasses. Uh, that's 15% of the global population that cannot effectively uh, work or learn because they can't see right. Uh, Warby Parker has partnered with nonprofits around the world. Uh, one of them is called Vision Spring, and they ensure that for every pair of glasses that Warby Parker sells, a pair is distributed to someone in need around the world, which is amazing. So you get, you save money 
on stylish prescription glasses. Get a great deal on them. And while you do that, you're also helping somebody else around the world get a, a pair of eyeglasses too. Uh, can't recommend them highly enough. Everybody I know who uses them uh, loves them. Uh, really cool stuff. They also have really cool stuff for sizing, uh, using uh, your webcam. Uh, just amazing, amazing stuff. Really cool technology uh, and really, really disruptive to a, a, a business that was ripe for disruption. So where do you go to find out more? Go to warbyparker.com slash the talk show. Warbyparker.com slash the talk show. And they'll know you came from the show and uh, they'll have a special deal for you. So my thanks to Warby Parker. Go check them out if you need glasses. Oh, they have sunglasses too. So if you need sunglasses, go check them out too. All right, stickers. <laughs> I'm going to tell you, I am the typical American with all these messaging apps, platforms, social networks, where I, I've heard of them, but I don't really know anything about them. And I've heard about stickers, but mostly from Path, which I don't really use, but... Well, I mean, Path Path ripped it off from. I mean, ripped it off from Line, which was which was the first one. Uh, well, first off, you should get you should get Line. Um, you can you can add me if you want, and I will inundate you with stickers, uh, and then you'll probably block me. Um, so you know, the, the thing with stickers is uh, one like they're they're amazingly expressive. Like, I mean, obviously emoticons are are a thing, and you can have opinions about them, but like. There's there's just things you can express with the sticker that you can't express any other way, whether it be like, you know, some beers, like some like sadness, disappointment. Like it it, it honestly is a thing. And I know I sound absolutely ridiculous saying it, but unless you've actually tried it, you can't you can't get it. Well, how's it different um, than emo emoji emoji? How do you I always mispronounce emoji? It's like what's the difference between like um you know, reading something and seeing a picture or seeing a picture and seeing a, a, a movie. Like it's just, it's that much more expressive and there's so much more variety. Uh, then, it's even like, than emoji? Oh, totally. Totally. I mean, uh, an emoji, you, you, you get, you get the, it, it's not like, honestly, like I, I'm going to not even do it justice. Like I, I would encourage everyone who like, doesn't believe me, like just go down the line get your significant other or one friend to do it and just like mess around for a little bit, like use it for a week to communicate with this one person. Um, and, and then you can come back and say, you know, tell me I'm an idiot. And, but I would wager, uh, that some of you will, will definitely, will definitely see what I'm talking about. Um, and, and what's interesting about wine in particular is like, they've, they've, um, you know, just the thing with stickers, everyone thinks they all make their money in stickers. It's only like 20% of these companies revenues actually, um, just, throwing that out there but like wine is really made a thing out of like some of their main characters like they have four main characters and there's like supplemental characters and it's like a whole thing like you know like hello kitty is like this like scourge upon the world um and is everywhere and there's all types of branded stuff like wine is in japan is already like that uh there are there was an exhibition actually here in taiwan like about wine characters and like art pieces and like all this sort of stuff like it's 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 really interesting what they're doing with it um, to being kind of this whole this whole kind of segment of of you know it's, it's definitely a Japanese thing but it's 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 something it, it's hard to get unless you actually try it but it, take my word for it you can be so much more expressive and so much more fast in what you want to say 
uh, right. a well placed sticker really hits the spot. So, so my wife is is a pretty good. Again, tell me how to pronounce these: emoji or emoji. I, you know, I, I'm terrible at pronouncing words. I, well, you're I, I over. Think it's emo- uh, <laughs> I think it's emoji. All right. Um, I don't know. Whatever I did, I remember it. Uh, at the live talk show at WWDC, but I had this because uh, there was a, a a bit that Scott Simpson uh, wrote, and uh, Merlin Mann and and Adam Lisagor came out to perform it, where they were they were reading a dialogue back and forth that was communicated entirely in in emoji, you know. Uh, emoji, emoji is what, is what, w- right. is what Wikipedia says. Well, I said emo. Then I must have said emoji on stage, and and Scott Simpson made a big shit out of me. But he knows how to speak. He knows how to speak Japanese. I mean, he like lived there for a couple of years, so it's like. And was the point of him being there was to make a shit out of you, wasn't yeah. it? Wasn't it? Yeah. Well, no, not for my <laughs> not for my uh, uh, pronunciation disability. <laughs> um, no, but for for example, my wife is very. Uh, uh, funny with them, you know, and she, you know, so you're talking about things like where I will, you know, she'll text me and uh, if I'm, you know, out with a couple of other dads who coach little league or something, and and I say, hey, you know, the meetings running late, uh, and she'll just text me, you know, a couple of beers emoji, uh, as in as if you know, yeah, I know what you're doing. Yeah. Right. And she doesn't have to say anything. She'll just text me the beers uh, or something like that. Uh, she would go nuts with the beer stickers uh, in 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 line, and they come they come by default, which is great. So here's here here's the the main testimony that I have. So I, I the one person I've been trying to convince to line is is uh you know the mysterious no one knows who he is Casey Liss, um who you know likes to brag about his emoji uh you know capabilities uh, on Twitter. Fluency. Would you call yes. it? It's like a fluency. I, I, I think he likes to think that he's some sort of master. Okay. Um, you know, I, I guess in a world of, if you're living in a world with Mark Lormet and John Syracuse, you got to claim some sort of high ground. So, uh, um, anyhow, I finally got him to sign up for wine and, uh, and after, you know, resisting. And uh, within like five minutes, he totally got it. Uh, and he, he posted on Twitter. Well, I find the tweet like, "Okay, yeah, I, I mocked it. You had to try it. Now I get it. It's it's awesome." Um, so it's one of those things you you just got to try. But like I said, that that's it's it's only one piece of the puzzle for for these apps. But all right, but let's it. well let's talk about the other pieces. But also, I want to I want to figure out the stickers thing. So also, it, it's is it like. Who can add new stickers? See, like one of the problems, if you, you know, not well, I don't know about problem, but one of the obvious deficiencies to emoji is emoji is like a standardized character set. It's like, yep. you know, I don't even, I, I think, I guess it's officially part of Unicode now. I don't know, but it, it's all predefined, right? Where there's, you know, there's a code mark, you know, and, the, you know, it's a, a piece of code and the code maps to smiling pile of poo. I know that's what, that was the one I was thinking. Like, how did Poo make it through a committee? I don't like know, it, <laughs> right? But then there's you know uh, that's one, probably the same day as all the beers, right? And then there's you know one of them is like maps to a uh, uh, barbershop pole, right? You know, <laughs> no, yeah, but it's it's you don't have a choice though. Like, so if you were writing an right. app that was going to uh, you know, or like when Apple decided to embrace emoji system wide and they made a font 
they didn't get to pick those things. They they was you know, they just drew an uh, a picture for each of those code points. Right. And whereas with stickers, and if it's you know, Line has its own proprietary stickers. So Line's stickers are Line only. Right. Right. No, and- so the. the- it's a super it's actually a really smart question because that starts to get at some of the other ways that they that they make money. So it comes with some free sets and they're always releasing extra free sets and like Christmas they'll have like a set of like Christmas ones or whatever. But then there's also sticker sets packs for sale for like 199. Um and they'll be thematic. Sometimes they'll be like there's a Mickey Mouse set, there's a Hello Kitty set, there's a Garfield set just to take the the US ones. And obviously there's a whole ton of them for all these like all these Asian anime like series like and so those are very very popular. And they're officially and they, officially licensed. It's a officially real, licensed. Right. Yep. And so that that's where they make the direct money. One thing that's really interesting is uh brands like say uh 7-Eleven or Starbucks. Um they will what they will do is they pay line like $50,000 or $100,000 depend, depending on the market. Um, Japan's probably the most expensive one. And then line will, in conjunction, they'll create a set of stickers that are free. And and so, but it works two ways. One, like, so basically you follow the Starbucks account online, then you get the sticker pack for free. So line's kind of like making money on both sides. So one, uh, Starbucks is paying them for the right to have the stickers available in the store. Uh, Two, Starbucks gets the benefit of people like spraying Starbucks, you know, stickers all over the place. And then three, Starbucks now has this direct channel to all these customers because they they willingly followed Starbucks. Well, what happens when you follow them? Is it like following a company on Twitter? You mean uh, you yeah. Get, you get posts from them? Well, you, you can't – yeah, they, they can send it – they can send it to you. They can send a coupon to you. They can send – they could do all sorts of stuff. But it's not – it's not like a stream. Like all these are are organized by you know by the person you follow, and you can you can block them, so you can download it and block it. But do you get to keep the stickers lo- after you block them? Yeah, you can. Okay. Um. They, they but they all expire. Like all the free ones always expire. The stickers. So yeah. What so happens if you if, go back to an old message? Does the expired sticker still show up? Yeah, it still shows up. But you can't use it anymore. Right. Huh. Um. So if Starbucks wants to keep their stickers in the store, then they're paying up again. Um, so that's, that's, that's about another 20% of the revenue is, uh, like enterprises and companies paying for, paying for the right to like get on the platform and be available to customers. And stickers is is one of the main ways they they do that. Um, the rest of it is, uh, like there's like, I want to say 40, but the number might be a lot bigger than that. Like line games and apps. And there's a whole universe of apps uh, which do monetize through uh, in-app purchase, and because because wait games, line, yeah, there's a ton of line games, and they're all these super simple. Like Flappy Birds have been a great fit for a line game. Like they're these simple. You don't um, can you play? You can't play that in the iPhone app though, can you? No, so they're all separate apps. Okay, so if you go into the iTunes Store and like go to like Publisher and go like by Neighbor, which is like the the company that that owns Line, there's like a ton of apps. And and in these apps are the classic like in-app purchase money makers, um, whatever you may think of them. And but w- the thing is, is because they own the app 
that people spend the vast majority of their time in. And whenever there's that little badge there that you have a message, you're going to go to it. And occasionally there's a message there that says, oh, check out our new game or get these stickers if you download our game, which is totally something that they do. Uh, And then you download the game and now you're playing the game and then, you know, you only need a small percentage to get converted and then you're making money off of them. So like like on iOS, you you would if you download their game, does the game prompt you to sign in with your line account? Yeah, it's like it's yeah. you know how there's like some app like Facebook Paper like if you already had the Facebook app installed like you're automatically signed in. Well, so but that's a little different that, though because Facebook is is baked into the system. Oh, that that's true. But well, yeah, it, it it what it does is it's if you quick sign in, it'll flip over to the line app and then you authorize the app. Right. It's yeah, like an OAuth. But you, you don't even you don't even have to, but you don't even have to sign in. Like I don't know how what what sort of black magic they're doing, but you quick like authorize. It switch uses one of those, you know, the URL code to switch to the line right. app, and then but, it switches right back. Right, but you're already signed into the line app. Right, exactly, I understand. Exactly. You don't have to. You don't have to type a username password again. It'll, but you do have to go to the line app where you are signed in and authorize it. Yeah, a lot of right. Twitter apps work like that. Or, yeah, no, exactly. So, and so, so what's interesting is like, what's the hardest thing about making money? Or what's the hardest thing about making money right now? For as far as an app maker goes, it's discovery, right? Search in right. the search, it sucks. Um, it's hard to market your app, like, and Line has this like unbelievably efficient and powerful marketing channel directly to customers. And right now, they're and so if you're a developer, you could go into the app store and like do your best to get a hit game, and then you get to collect seventy percent of the revenue, or you could partner with Line, give thirty percent to Apple. 20% to line and yeah you're making less for every purchase but way more but reach, way right? more in volume because you have this massive distribution channel right. and that's why like that's why messaging is such a big deal like it is it is the killer distribution channel on these mobile phones you know where there isn't searched like there is on the desktop right. or on the mobile web um and that's why they're a really really big deal so line and wechat are both still independent uh, WeChat's owned by Tencent, the the like the the huge Chinese internet company. So it's interesting because Tencent Tencent's biggest app was has always been um, QQ. So QQ is instant messaging for the desktop, like think AOL, but unlike AOL and unlike MSN, uh, QQ also had all these added services. Where So everyone had a QQ account. That was the way to communicate in China. But there was tons of ways to make money on top of that. So actually, Lion and WeChat are almost copying the QQ model. And what's interesting about all this is like there, there's, it's, there's so much more advanced and so much more innovation in this area in Asia than there is in the U.S. And like it, it was just deeply amusing to find people kind of blown away by messaging. And I think once people start to realize these business models that are emerging around messaging, like people are going to be that much like wine's going to IPO this year and it's going to blow people's socks off once they go for, you know, rumor last fall was 10 billion. After this, it's probably going to be maybe 15. Um, and, you know, it's, it's, uh, it, it works very well. It's very interesting. It's totally mobile first. And, like, if you're objectively honest and you say, what are the most important technology companies in the world? Like, within a few years, you're going to have to put Line and WeChat uh, in that conversation. Uh, 
is does Line have anything? Does it have a web or desktop interface? They do. So they they have desktop clients both for Windows and for the Mac, uh, which is kind of nice actually. WhatsApp doesn't, and so actually that's one of the reasons I don't like using WhatsApp because I hate having to have my like pay attention to my phone. Um, and it's, it's literally. WhatsApp is literally not really mobile only; it's phone only. I mean, they it's they one, won't what's, they won't even run one phone only. Right, like the only identification is your is your phone number. Right. Whereas with Line, you can you can add a username to your account. It starts with a phone number, and so that lets you have different clients. Um, yeah. And it has like calling, like so you can call client to client. Like um, it has video. Like it has the whole set of communications. I, and that actually, I wanted to talk about that. That's an angle of WhatsApp that, to me, I mean, I suppose that they could pivot at some point and have a mechanism where if you have an existing WhatsApp account that is, like you said, tied explicitly to one and only one phone number, that if they wanted to expand from phones to, to you know, any mobile device or have a desktop client or something, that they could have a way to make an account you know, some there's got to be some way that you could expand your account so that you could log in, just type your phone number and add a password or something. Right. Uh, no, exactly. It, it's totally doable. It's you know, or, and, or or maybe even without a password, what they could do. I was thinking about this. Is, it just seems like a good puzzle. Is you could you could put your phone number in, and then they would message you on your phone and authorize on the phone and say, "Hey, somebody's trying to log in on your thing." You want to authorize it, and then you'd have like an authorization token or something like that. Yep. No, um, totally. But they don't. They're are they're literally phone only. Yep, they're phone only. And what's interesting too is not only they phone only, but it's interesting that they don't have a a VoIP capability, um, whereas the other ones do. Like right. you can't call someone through through WhatsApp. Right. Um, it's messaging and and which is, I get how that appeals to people, especially from a theoretical standpoint because it's oh it's simplified it's focused um as someone who i like to think subscribes to that uh i vastly prefer using using line over over whatsapp like it's simplicity is good until it's too simple and it doesn't do everything right. that you would want it to do it's it is i have to say i didn't sign up for it until this week broke i'd heard of whatsapp but then once it did i i had to check it out so i downloaded it and it is a truly a no-brainer sign-up process. Mm-hmm. Um, for anybody who hasn't tried it, you you download the app. The app is now free. Sometimes it was ninety-nine cents, but now it's free. Um, see, reading about them, what they did was, and they felt like their growth was too fast. They just changed the app from free to ninety-nine. Yeah, that was cents. so interesting. Yeah, yeah, and that that alone slowed the growth. Uh, it wasn't because they wanted the money from ninety-nine cents. They just wanted to, you know. Maintain so it. Servers could keep up. Right. Uh, you launch the app and they say, what's your phone number? Because they don't know your phone number because apps on iOS can't just read, you know, it's actually private information. You um, type in your phone number. They send you an SMS with a code and a URL. So you can either enter the code manually or you can just... Uh, tap the URL and it goes to the web and then it bounces back to the app and it says, okay, this, you know, the person who actually owns this phone number authorized it, you're in. And then that's it. And now people can message you. Anybody who knows your phone number can message you on WhatsApp. 
Yeah, it's 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 really smart. What's what's other thing that's interesting, just from a factoid perspective, is their biggest cost is SMS messages. Right, I saw uh, that. I saw that. Yeah, because they um, send, they have to pay to send the, and it's the only SMS messages they send are those sign up authorization. Yeah, it gives you an idea of how fa- how much how massive their growth is. Right, it's not like they're sending. It's not like their SMS costs are high because they're sending some of the actual messages by SMS. It's just the sign up authorization. Yeah, and it was. I saw that at one point it was like five hundred thousand dollars a month. It might be higher yeah. right now, um, because in some of the countries around the world, it's like it's just crazy how much uh, you know bulk SMS costs. Yeah, well, that's the other thing that it, that's interesting about this is, you know, 10, 15 years ago, uh, and this, I think, is why the U.S. is behind here. 10, 15 years ago, uh, it was really expensive to call people in most countries from a mobile phone um, or to a mobile phone. Like, there was different rates depending if you're calling a mobile phone or if you were calling a, a, a landline. And... So what happened was it was relatively cheaper to message. So messaging became a big thing. In the U.S. in the meantime, everyone had these bucket plans where your price per call, as long as you didn't call too much in a month, was basically free. And so the U.S. has always been more voice-centric. Over time, SMS has caught up. And what happened in the U.S. is SMS became all basically you, you pay 20 bucks a month and you get unlimited SMS. Um, in the meantime, in the rest of the world, you were still paying for SMS. It was less than talking, but when you had an app come along that made SMS totally free, again, it was very attractive because you were still paying for SMS. Whereas in the U.S., if SMS is already free, um, the attraction of a free app is obviously less. So it's interesting to th- like how these kind of like dynamic U.S. Everyone knows the U.S. carrier market is kind of weird, and it's it's played out even to through this deal where WhatsApp didn't really have any penetration in the US yet was dominant all over the world um it's all because of like our you know messed up carrier system yeah uh, let me take a break and I want to come back I want to talk to you about iMessage and how this how that fits into this but let me take a break and thank our second sponsor and it's our good friends at Media Temple Now, for years, Media Temple's grid service has been the web hosting choice of more designers, developers, and creative professionals than any other platform. That's because a single Media Temple grid account can host anything from your portfolio site to 100 different client projects. And the grid is ready for anything. Hundreds of servers working together in the cloud to keep your sites online. Uh, Even if you suddenly hit the front page of uh, Reddit or uh, maybe if uh, if I link to you, uh, they can handle it. It's all managed through Media Temple's own custom control panel, very nicely designed, uh, by sort of a by designers for designers control panel, uh, and backed by Media Temple's famous twenty four seven live tech support. Um, they also have virtual private server solutions. Um, all sorts of stuff. It really, really great stuff. If you are like an independent, um, like a freelance developer, and you want uh, a hosting thing where you can just offer your clients, look, I'll do. We'll do all the work. We'll develop it. We'll design it, and we'll host it. 
Media Temple's grid service is something you should absolutely look into uh, because you can just keep as as you keep growing, you can just keep allocating more resources for your clients. Great, great stuff. Now, here's a great deal. Go to mediatemple.net, and if you use the promo code TALKSHOW, T-A-L-K-S-H-O-W, you get 25% off your first month of web hosting. Mediatemple.net, and the coupon code is TALKSHOW. Go check them out for uh, anything you need web hosting-wise. So here's my question. In the U.S., like you said, these apps are nowhere near as big as they seem to be elsewhere. It seems like most messaging is uh, either SMS or, for me at least, uh, it's almost entirely iMessage. It's, it is really rare for me to get a green message in, in messages. I think I have, I have one person who I regularly text who, uh, who you know, uses an Android phone, so it turns up green. And they work at Google? No, no. Uh, <laughs> it's my friend Lee who owns uh, Hopsing Laundromat at the bar. Someone worth keeping in touch with. Exactly. Um, and that's not because – it's half because I, professionally I'm in this Apple-centric bubble. And so all of my professional, you know, work-related messaging, you know, to to – Dave Whiskus and Brent, if it's, you know, Vesper related, uh, or anybody who I'm texting with daring fireball related. Well, yeah, obviously a lot of them are going to use iOS devices or all of them are, uh, but even stupid things, things that you wouldn't think, I mean, it just, it just shows, you know, how popular the iPhone is and, and, in the, you know, the circles, I mean, like my, my, uh, sister, uses an iPhone. I know I didn't tell her to buy an iPhone. She, you know, it's just, it's what she has. Uh, the other coaches in my son's little league baseball, little league, um, they just happen to have all have iPhones. Um, a lot of them former Blackberry users. Um, it seems like to me in this, in the, in the wake of this WhatsApp deal that, that Apple's, prescience at developing iMessage has gone sort of unremarked upon because I think iMessage has got to be up there in terms of, you know, number of user active users on a messaging platform. It just stands out because it's, you know, it, it and BBM are, uh, you know, uh, oddballs because they're proprietary to one company's devices. Yeah, well, I mean, BBM is now cross-platform, but um, but yeah, no, I agree. I mean, it's it's a uh, it is prescient. It's a um, it's a very valuable it's it's a valuable service. Uh, you know, I think it's a you know it's a great example of how Apple uses services to make their devices more valuable. So, for example, uh, I mean, just one way to look at it. There's, I don't think Apple even ever once even considered for a moment purchasing WhatsApp because they already have they have exactly what they want and need which is their own messaging platform for their just for their own devices which is all they want they already have it right and they they they're they're not interested in making it easier you know to easier than beyond the app store to communicate with different manufacturers like that's silly why would right. they, why would they want to do that no i mean i think apple from a uh 
you know, this is the key thing to, you know, with Apple services is they, they exist to make Apple devices more attractive so they can charge a higher price. Right. And iMessage is a great example of that. I think Apple in general has, um, you know, PhotoStream, I think is really interesting. I would love to get some numbers on PhotoStream. Like, how many people are using it? Um, I don't think the UI, UI is, is as great as it should be, but it's an amazing service. Right. Uh, you know, that's how I keep my, you know, my parents in the loop with, with the kids and stuff like that. Um, and, you know, I almost feel like I understand why Apple did maps. You know, it, it's so it's so critical. But I wish Apple's services energy in general were just totally focused on this, like making their devices like such a pleasure to own, like PhotoStream does, like iMessage does. Um, I wish like the iCloud thing, like you should have like everything on an i device, an, I, an iPad or an iPhone should be backed up for free, like. Um, yet you have these stupid nagging reminders and you can't even buy enough backup for all the devices that you have. Um, like that's where I w- would love to see Apple really focus their focus their energies. Like just make it, if you buy an iOS device, all this stuff's taken care of, you're good to go. Um, and I agree, it's, it's not valued. Like no one has a number on that. Like how much is iMessage worth? It, in light of WhatsApp, you could make an argument it's worth many billions of dollars. Um yeah, I would love to know the active number of iMessage users. Uh, like, w- we kind of have a rough estimate of active iOS users. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, here's the question: H- Have you have you canceled your your SMS part of your carrier package? No, because I still need to get. Like I said, I need to get SMSs from uh, Hopsing Laundromat. <laughs> <laughs> That's what would be really interesting. Like. I, I don't think it makes sense um, on our Verizon shared family. I, 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 from my understanding of the way it works, it doesn't make sense to cancel. I don't even know if we could cancel SMS separately. Yeah, I mean we um, don't. We don't. We certainly we have a minimal. Um, uh, we don't. We certainly don't add any. We don't need to. You know, and mm-hmm. even things like, um, you know, uh, my son is ten. He doesn't text a lot yet. I, you know, I think he, he's on the cusp. Uh, I suspect that like the girls in fourth grade are way into it. I, you know, I think that it's just the way that girls socialize so much faster than boys, but, uh, you know, he'll text his grandparents, you know, a little bit, uh, but you know, it's all I message. Mm-hmm. You know, that I think about it, I, it is very valuable, but I, I, I wonder, I, I would, I'm just going to throw a ballpark number. I think there's gotta be at least a hundred million. I message users. Oh yeah, no, I, I think I think easily, right? And maybe two hundred million. I think the question is not how many users there are; it's how many people prefer an iOS device because it has iMessage capabilities. I mean, I I've heard anecdotes of you know, like in high school circle, like iMessage is the way to communicate, and like if you don't if you don't have the blue bubble, like you're you're excluded or whatever, right? Um, you know, I think that's that's definitely possible, and that stuff you know accrues. It accrues to Apple. It accrues to to what it means to be you know an an Apple owner, for better or worse. Yeah, the green um, the green ones are gross. I mean, yeah, they I, are. It's, it's, it's been, a it's a weird kind of green. Like, yeah. Yeah, I wonder if it's on purpose. I I don't know. I think it kind of is. I I've, I've said this before. I think one of the 
I, it seems like a stupid thing to dwell upon with the gazillion changes in iOS 7. The most single most surprising thing in iOS 7 to me is that they didn't change the icon for the messages app to a blue bubble instead of the green bubble. That they've kept it, they've kept it phone colored green, which to me implies SMS, right? That the right. reason all along that messages was uh, the same color green as phone is it was the until yeah. iMessage came along, it was you know it was the way that SMS and your phone conversations were, uh, you know, not data; they were voice and SMS, right? There, you got three things, you know, with your phone account you know you get phone you get you get you get voice calls you get sms and you get data and you know whatsapp is a perfect example where not just on ios devices but everything around the world everything is moving to data mm-hmm. and messaging is moving to data faster than voice uh yeah but voice will get there too eventually i mean there's you know it's it's nonsense that we're not all you know that everything won't eventually soon be data uh I think on iOS, it's at the point where most iOS users are sending the blue messages. So I, I, I think they should make the icon blue and make it seem like the green ones are the oddball. No, I, I think I, I, in principle, I agree. Um, in reality, I, I keep all my messaging apps in one folder and they're all green except for Facebook Messenger. And I can't tell you how much having that blue icon there just drives me up the wall. Hmm. So uh, if th- th- that that would be problematic from my perspective. But uh, here, here's 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 the thing, though. I think in, I think it depends on market by market basis. The reality is, when you started out saying the thing that surprised me most about iMessage, like I started looking for my phone because I don't think I've opened the Messages app on my phone. It's been months. Hmm. And that's because all messaging here is is line. I have a few friends on WhatsApp, I have a few friends on WeChat, and the only time I use the Messages app is when I'm back in the states. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I think that it's probably somewhere in the middle. It's it, it, that's the thing with messaging; like it's it's totally gonna be a market by market thing. Like I don't think anyone will win the world like Facebook did on the desktop, but they'll fight it out kind of country by country. It it Apple is in a really good spot in this regard because they own iMessage. And iMessage and, and again, I know there's a couple of bugs, but I think it's gotten a lot better. I use it a lot. And at least for my use, it's it's pretty good. Yes, there's definitely bugs. So I I just I, I was traveling last weekend and for whatever reason never unpacked my iPad and uh wanted it last night. So it had been I don't know, five days since I'd used my iPad and I opened it up and, or I charged it. I took it out, charged it. Um, and then like two hours later, took it out and started using it. And then I wanted to watch TV after I'd been using the iPad and put it down on the coffee table and I was done with it. And then all of a sudden, every <laughs> iMessage I'd had for like the last five days started coming in on the iPad. And and I was, was getting like a mini a, earthquake in your house. I was, it, it, it was weird. I mean, it was, you know, and, and that's not right. I don't know. I mean, it's, it's like, I, it's kind of cool that it could catch up on those conversations, but it's, uh, it was annoying that it was, you know, making noise, um, uh, for old messages. And it was, it was, it was like, uh, it was a lot of work stuff for Vesper. And so I, I thought at first, I thought Dave Wiskus was sending me like, <laughs> <laughs> 
40 messages all at once at 3 a.m. And I was going to give them, a, a, you know, shut the hell Start up. Start talking to. Yeah. <laughs> but then it was, you know, they were like days old. Uh, so, yeah, it's not perfect. I understand. But overall, I think it works pretty well. Um, so they've got that. They have that in their pocket where no matter what, they've got iMessage. And it's it's pretty solid. And it does what they want. Uh, but number two, you know, with the app store, you know, they're, they've got all of these things, right? So WhatsApp is a big thing. Well, there's, you know, it, WhatsApp started as an iPhone app and is, you know, still actively, you know, very actively developed iPhone app. There's a line app. There's, you know, all these things have iPhone apps. So, you know, you go to Taiwan and everybody, nobody uses iMessage. Everybody's using these other services. You're A-OK on your Apple device. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's I, do all these apps are is this one of those another we shouldn't get sidetracked on Windows Phone yet, but um, is is this one of those things where Windows Phone is lacking some of these apps? Uh, they I don't know about I mean there's like a ton of messaging apps, um, but for the big ones they they have Windows Phone apps. Line has a Windows Phone app, WeChat has a Windows Phone app, WhatsApp right. has a Windows Phone app. This is the this is the the thing about Windows Phone though is those apps are crap. Um, the problem with a lot, the secondary problem that is easy to get lost in bemoaning the apps that aren't there is that the ones that are there are are often very rough. You know, yeah. you have the C team working on them, or you have a we weren't going to talk about it, but yeah, they are they are there. No, but they're, that's they're a, a it rough. is a good point, and I've I've mentioned that point, uh, you know, ever since Android really first started gaining traction, while while. You know, this is circa 2008, 2009, you know, when, when Android was really early, early stages and, you know, was behind in every metric. There were fewer Android, there were only a handful of Android devices released yet. There were few in number, uh, apps were way behind. And as the app store started catching up and, and, you know, and there were these, you know, you know the total number of apps in the app I've, the iTunes App Store was way higher than the the Android App Store, the Google Play or whatever they called it back then. And I emphasize right from the start, that's great, but you know if that's the only reason to use an iOS device, then we should all be using Windows computers because Windows always had more apps than Mac. You know the mm-hmm. the you know the reason we use Macs is. Because the apps are better, not because there's more of them, right? Dude, this is such a thing. Like, and that I, is so, an advantage. You know, to me, that's always been the bigger advantage that the uh, Apple, the iTunes app store has had is not just the breadth, but the quality of the top apps. Yep. No. It, it, so I, I I worked at Microsoft, obviously. So I was a, um, I, I was originally a Windows user, switched to Mac in like 2004, um, and then went to Microsoft, where I said use Windows again. And to be honest, like Windows 7, uh, and then I worked on Windows 8, but we're both like, they were great operating systems. I, I, there was actually some things in them that I really quite preferred to, to OS 10, having been away for a while. Uh, and that, when I was talking to a friend, I'm like, actually, I don't mind the operating system at all, but the apps are just a disaster. And he was like, you know, he couldn't believe what I was talking about on oh, no Windows. I always had the advantage of apps, but like, the, that was exactly it. Like, the quality of a outliner. I was used to Omni Outliner, the quality of a to-do app. Um, you know, I, I used Omni Focus. Uh, you know, I guess it was Omni was the one I, I was really pining for. But the quality of the apps was, in my estimation, such a stark difference that it it was a daily irritant that I that I didn't I was having these rough edges that I was didn't enjoy having. And I th- 
I think that's still the case in, in, in phones. I'm the worst talk show host ever. I want to talk about this stuff, but I want to talk about it later. <laughs> so let's call that a teaser for the final segment of the show. Because uh, I do want to talk about Windows Phone and, and Microsoft and Windows. Um, and you're exactly, you're like, it's almost as though you're reading some of my notes that I prepared for the show. Uh, but I still want to talk about messaging. So uh, iMessage, let's agree that Apple has, you know, this WhatsApp deal is, it's unheralded, but it it shows that Apple has another sort of billion dollar value thing in its pocket, even though yeah. it's inseparable from the company. Yep. Uh, BBM. I th I've seen a lot of people point out. So like you said, they, it is cross-platform now. And they had a plan to make it cross-platform years ago. And, and years ago, it was sort of a killer feature of owning a BlackBerry is that you got free messaging, you know, and mobile messaging. And, mm -hmm. you know, I... I I think it's fair to say that in hindsight, this was one of the main innovations that BlackBerry had, you know, more than the device itself, but that they, uh, they saw the value in mobile messaging mm -hmm. and that by making it unmetered, you know, compared to SMS, uh, it, it let for people do it freely. Right, you didn't yeah. have to think. Hey, because the thing about SMS is it's not just costing you to send the damn thing. You know, it's, it's the mental cost. Well, and you're costing the person receiving it, right? It it's like when mm -hmm. you in the days when SMS cost when everybody used SMS and they cost you know it doesn't matter ten cents whatever. It it it's a bit rude. It feels to just say, hey, by the way, I'm going to take a dime from you because I want to send you this thing that says, uh, you know, can we, can we push back dinner half an hour, right? There's a mental cost to that. You don't want to charge somebody. It feels rude. So BlackBerry was way ahead on that. And it really does. I've seen, it, this is not a, a unique observation. And there's about 5,000 people who've observed the same thing that uh, this WhatsApp deal shows just how big a mistake it was for BlackBerry not to go cross-platform with BBM three, four, five years ago. So, three three this, probably would have been too too late, but four or five years ago. Uh, th but this is why business is is hard, because the reality is is BBM was a killer feature. It absolutely drove the adoption of BlackBerry phones, particularly in emerging markets um, like Indonesia, where BlackBerry is still it's right. like that's their last foothold. Right. And the problem is when you're selling a BlackBerry device and you're making $150 of profit on that device, like it's really like, and, and you're saying, okay, we should actually pivot to removing the main differentiation of this device that makes it worth buying right. and pivot to this model where we can make $5, $10 per user per year. Uh, and yes, over time, it will be a much bigger business. It'll be valued at $19 billion, and our company is on its way to being valued at $6 billion. Otherwise, there's this, there's this two to three-year gap in there where you're basically like killing your business for the promise of having a better business in the future. And that two to three-year gap is, is for a publicly traded company is, is untenable. Um, you know, one of the things I'd love to talk, you know, talk to you about, maybe we would save it for another time, but is like the kind of unfortunate reality of being a publicly traded company. Like 
and the the limitations it puts on you and you know it's it's and that's one of them because like, you it's not just that you have to go to one person be it the chairman or the ceo exactly. and get one yes it's that you need this consensus from a um an ir, a largely or often irrational herd mhm right I, you know, that you don't have, and it's no way to get an explicit permission. You have to get this consensus permission. And it's, you know, if you think a committee of 10 is hard to get agreement upon, imagine having, you know, millions of shareholders. But it's worse than that, though, because especially in tech where where so much compensation is tied into stock, uh, you're kind of disincentivizing your workforce, like the thing with Apple, I mean, people, I mean, a big part of Apple is people are absolutely believe in the mission and they're there because they think they're changing the world. No question. Um, the other thing, though, is an Apple engineer does not make any more. In fact, they probably make a little bit less than a lot of other places. But they've done very, very well with their stock options over, you know, before the last couple of years. And that makes up for a lot of missed weekends. That makes up for a lot of late nights. And when that's getting stagnant or going down, uh, now you're having a retention problem. You're having a you know people wanting wanting raises. Like it's it's really the the trouble with having a kind of uh, a declining stock price or a stock price that's not going up is is a lot more problematic than just bad press. And and that's I think. It's, I think that's that final one, the employee issue that is you is important to understand when you wonder why Apple bothers no. with this stuff. Well, and strategically, it is a lot easier for a company who who is maybe coming to the end of the line with their previous cash cow, you know, uh, BlackBerry with with their messaging oriented devices, uh, you know. Let's face it, Windows, uh, Microsoft with PC operating systems and applications. It's it is a lot easier to get buy-in for expanding and doing something new compared to uh, disrupting and undercutting your that cash cow, right? Mm-hmm. It's it's easier to add on. So, just a, a easy example: Facebook buying uh, WhatsApp. They're not disrupting Facebook Messenger. Really, because WhatsApp is bigger than Facebook Messenger, right? And they're not mm-hmm. making money. You know, the whole thing is that Facebook Messenger never really took off the way that Facebook wanted it to, right? They're adding on. Now they've got something they didn't have before. Right. They're not screwing with what they already have. Yep. Uh, and screwing with what you already have sometimes is the right thing to do, but that's the thing that's hard to get buy-in for. And I think it's hard for, like you said, a public company to do because investors might object because they don't see it. Yeah, well, sometimes they don't see it, but they don't care. Like they're they're worried about you know they they will sell your stock and invest it elsewhere. Like they're worried about they're solely focused on the return, right? You know, and, it, and it's it, a kind of mismatch in in incentives, right? And I think that the time. So I'm going to agree with you. I don't think I, I think in theory and in hindsight. Yeah, maybe BlackBerry had an opportunity with BBM to to be one of these massive uh, sort of platform agnostic messaging, mobile messaging platforms. But that the time for them to make that happen was a time when they 
they couldn't they couldn't they couldn't justify losing it as a competitive advantage for their devices that it was just too it's too compelling to say look if you want free messaging and a bunch of the people you know uh you know in Indonesia or wherever you live you know are doing it with blackberries you you should buy a blackberry well, it, well this is why it remains the like the single most impressive thing that apple has ever done uh is put itunes on windows for this exact reason um because it was basically saying we're giving up on the mac they weren't giving up the mac but they're giving up on like they that wasn't going to be a differentiator for the mac right and we're kind of betting on this on this new business it wasn't directly the same because they weren't undercutting the mac per se um, but they were foregoing, it was an opportunity cost. They were fo- foregoing an opportunity to make a Mac more attractive relative to Windows. Right. Um, right. It set but, the iPod up as its own individual thing as opposed to a thing that made the Mac better. Right, exactly. And the thing with that, though, is like what made that tenable in a lot of ways was that it was, even though he was the last one to agree to it, it was Steve Jobs doing it. Right. And this is one of the things that you get with having a founder, a CEO. Like they have a lot more leeway to do these sort of things. And this is for Microsoft. And and you know, I I hope this is why Bill Gates came back. Um, is to kind of lend credibility to some of the hard decisions they need to make. Um, because there's some there's some things that people like a founder can get away with that no one else can get away with. All right, let's hold on to that thought. Uh, I want to thank our third sponsor, and it's our good friends at Backblaze. Backblaze is online, cloud-based, unthrottled backup for your Mac, written by former Apple engineers. Great software. You download it, you start a free trial for 15 days, backs up everything on your Mac, everything. Unless there's something you don't want backed up, let's say a folder full of huge movies or something like that, that you don't care right. if it if it gets backed movies. up. Movies, you know what I mean. <laughs> but if there's something big, or or you know, I'm uh, determined to make this the show that gets you in trouble. Uh, I'm not getting in trouble. Uh, you know, you could think of exceptions if you want. You can make exceptions if you want the whole drive backed up. You can back up the whole drive, uh, and it just gets backed up to the cloud. Does the initial backup take a long time? Yes, it actually does because you might have, uh, you know, gigabytes of stuff. Uh, just let it go. It just runs in the background. doesn't take up all of your bandwidth. You can throttle it. You can control how much it uses. Uh, and it's super easy. just goes. They have iOS apps that you can use once you have stuff backed up. Or even in the middle of your first backup, whatever already does has been backed up is there. So you're out of the house. You want to uh, access one of the files on your Mac. Just open up your uh, Backblaze app on your iOS device, your iPhone. There it is, all of your files. Uh, once it is backed up, changes get backed up incrementally. Unbelievable service. Sounds too good to be true, but it really does work. It is just great. It, it is a no-brainer. Don't have to worry about it. Backup for your Mac. $5 a month. Uh, no add-ons, no nonsense. It's not like oh, basic account is five bucks, but if you want, you know, the good stuff, or if you want, uh, you know, enough storage to actually hold all your stuff, you have to pay more. Nope. Uh, whatever you've got on your Mac, 
$5 a month. Great, great deal. Uh, and it, like I emphasize every week when I when these guys sponsor the show, the fact that it's offline is a huge deal. It is a great addition to something like Time Machine uh, or a cloned drive by Super Duper that you keep in your house. Um, offline means that if anything happens, you know, somebody breaks in your house, uh, a fire, uh, some kind of electrical surge burn, burns out all your stuff. Uh, there's something out of your house where your back, everything on your Mac is backed up. Such peace of mind. Uh, really, really great. Go check them out. See for yourself. Um, go to uh, backblaze.com slash daringfireball. They use the code Daring Fireball because they they tie the same campaign to uh, to ads they've run on Daring Fireball. Uh, go check them out. My thanks to them. You're nuts if you don't check out Backblaze. No, I, so I I I picked it up. Uh, I've been meaning to, one of the things I've been meaning to do. I have I have a super rigorous disk backup system, um, but I've been meaning to do the the online thing for ages. Did it thanks to this ad. Um, I was actually waiting. Uh, but no, it was actually way faster than I expected too. The yeah. the upload went. That said, I I'm in like a modern country that actually has decent broadband as compared to the U.S. Um, so that, that that might be part of it. But, I live in um, Comcast country. <laughs> I have good right, download. Philadelphia. I, yeah. Um, Comcast. No, I, I, I couldn't com- be more impressed with. You me. know the you ever see those uh, the it, the prototypical guy at the gym who only works his arms. <laughs> and he's got like toothpick legs and real big arms. That's Comcast. Comcast has pretty good down, but up up is up is a pair of skinny legs. Yeah, no, it's crazy. I mean, it's crazy. Like I have, I think I have a hundred down and forty up, and I pay like oh, that's sick. Thirty dollars a month or something. Oh, it's it's ridiculous. That's sick. Um. All right. Last thing I want to talk about messaging wise, and I think also largely under talked about this week is Twitter and Twitter has direct messages. And a while ago, I don't know when it was like two years ago, somewhere around there, Twitter started downplaying direct messages and on the web interface, which I know a lot of people, a lot of people use for Twitter. They, they really kind of buried it. Yeah. I mean, not, maybe not even kind of that. I mean, they buried it. It's, it is not there. They have a lot of stuff you can click right on the homepage and direct messages. No longer was one of them. You had to go down a level. And once you put anything down one level in a hierarchy of an interface, it is gone from most people. Uh, I, I think there were an awful lot of people who, who signed up for Twitter, you know, over the last few years who have no idea that there's a direct messaging. And then a couple months ago, earlier this year, it's like they they kind of, you know, <laughs> kind of <laughs> realized we totally we, we kind of screwed that one up. Yeah, and they you know started elevating again and promoting it. Uh, and you know, f- just for example, this that's how you you said you haven't looked at iMessage in a while. That when we coordinated you know uh, the show via direct message, right? We did yep. Twitter DMs. Um, I do. So I would say that for me personally, my primary messaging is iMessage, where most of the what I would call a mobile message goes through that. Secondarily, though, is Twitter DMs. Uh, there's a bunch of people who I, I I message that way, but I think largely though it's a it's a lost opportunity for Twitter that they had an opportunity there and they they blew it. I no, I completely agree. Um, 
I, it's probably the primary thing for me just because being over here and that's the main way I, I connect and stay in touch with most people in the tech world. Um, the, the problem for the, the trouble for Twitter is exactly what makes Twitter so fantastic is exactly what makes it so such kind of a, a tough hill for them to climb in that, like for me, like, if I would give up every single tech product in my life before I gave up Twitter, like I would use a Windows phone, I would use a BlackBerry, like as long as it, as long as I still had Twitter, like that's how, that's how essential it is to my life. It's how I stay involved. It's how I stay connected. It's MG like Siegler often says, "What's the first app when you wake up in the morning? What's the first app you go to on your phone?" For me, it yeah, is well, Twitter. I mean, for for me, it, it, it I, I posted something similar. I, I think my first one was was Line, but that's replaceable, right? There's competitors. Like right. there's nothing like Twitter out there. And what makes it so interesting is because Twitter is organized by your interests. It's like what you actually care about. It's not necessarily who you know. Um, and you know, one thing I want to hint at is I'm actually starting a new podcast, and it's with someone who I met on Twitter. Like, and there's tons of people I have like that. The Do, problem can we, is, can we, we we have an announcement or just a hint? Is this a teaser? No, I, no it's an. I want. I, I, I've been. Uh, it's called Exponent. Uh, Exponent.fm. Uh, I need to after this show. I'm going to actually finish getting the site finished, so it will be presentable <laughs> when this is published. Uh, but we recorded two episodes actually, so there'll be two to download. All right. And who's um, your co-host? Uh, it's a guy named James Allworth. So he co-wrote uh, a book with Clay Christensen. Uh, How do you measure your life? Uh, he went. He went to Harvard. He he writes. He used to write more West now for the Harvard Business Review blog, um, but it's about like the intersection of. It's not just reviewing the news. It's kind of like tech and society. Like what's the impact of what's happening in technology on society as a whole, um, is more of the focus. So the first there will be business stuff. The first episode was all Microsoft and disruption. Uh, the second one was was about things like the the what's happening in San Francisco with the protests. Um, as well as some about the Comcast merger with Time Warner and things like that. So I, I think it should be pretty interesting, I, hopefully appealing to this audience, which is why I've been hustling to get it done. But this is a guy, um, but you're saying, though, that the, the relevance to Twitter is that this is somebody who your entire relationship with him was through Twitter. Absolutely. Like I, he, I, I found what he said on Twitter interesting. I thought it was, I thought he had a interest set that was similar to mine. So I followed him. I reached out to him, said, hey, can you follow me? I'd love to ping you in, in DM. And then through that, we built a relationship. We've met a few times now. And and now we're now we're launching a podcast together. Um, and I the trouble I have with Twitter is it's hard to one thing I really try to do and I've I think an advantage I have by not living in the, in the valley and and almost all the people I grew up with and almost all the people I, I interact with now are not technically inclined is I feel it gives me a good idea of like how normal people experience technology. Um, I have a hard time of that with Twitter because it's so like essential to my existence <laughs> like it's hard to like get out of it and like see what it is to like regular people but for me like because you know and I think a lot of people who love Twitter can relate to this I grew up in the Midwest grew up in Wisconsin I had no friends who were technically inclined I was 
I was into computers from a, a pretty early age. I, I loved following the stuff. Like, and I've lived in lots of interesting places. And Twitter gives me a chance to have this ongoing conversation with people just like me, no matter where they are in the world. And that's that's like that's amazing. The problem is to have that conversation, to get from day zero where you sign in to having a a great set of people you follow and stuff like that, it's really complicated, like incredibly complicated. It's the learning curve is so high. The payoff is totally worth it, but it's so hard to get people along that path to get there. Yeah. Um, that's the challenge. I also think, like, I think Twitter itself did not, in terms of messaging, I just don't, I, I really feel like internally they, they, they missed it. I agree. And and I I would judge it mainly by the interface that they presented for messaging which was not chat style, right? If third-party Twitter app developers, you know, uh, uh like uh Tweety and uh, uh I know Tweetbot which I use, you know, they present your DMs. They don't look like the tweets. They don't look like a stream of tweets. They're they look like chat. Yeah. Uh, everything about it from, you know, it, it, the way that it's uh, reverse chronological instead of chronological, they flip the order. It looks like chat bubbles. Uh, you don't type in a regular tweet posting window. It's a little chat thing with a send button next to it. Uh, whereas Twitter itself made it just, you know, for a while. I mean, I know that it was there were roots in, you know, back in 2007 when Twitter started there it was all based on SMS at first or at least they thought it was going to be. And so there was that code, what was it? D or DM? I don't even remember. No, it's D and then the username, username. but without the at symbol. Right. Cuz then we you could joke and you could type DM username and jokingly make it seem like a, right. a mistaken DM or people would do <laughs> DM do it for real. and do it for real, right? And that's it, was what a, made it, it was a big thing in a couple of years, the early right. part of Twitter. Yeah, people sending accidental DMs, right? Um, but, it, uh, you know, it still it was a problem. You know, even after the, the whole typing D thing, uh, D space username, people sent accidental DMs. Right, and that was a real problem. Whereas, it, I, I my personal rule is I will never, I almost never use the Twitter web interface. But if I do, I will never send a DM via it. I only send DMs by Tweetbot because I know I do, I'm a hundred percent sure I'd never make a mistake because the interface right. is different. Right. Uh, like a, you're not sending a personal tweet; you're sending a message. You know. Yeah. Even the name they picked, the name they picked showed how screwed up their interface was because direct messages are, they don't, they didn't call them direct tweets. They called them direct messages. Yeah. No, I, it, it, there's so much, like, yeah, I completely agree. The other thing too is like once they realize they're no longer SMS bound, like why are direct messages still 140 characters only? Um, like, right. The, 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 what's amazing about Twitter is the relationships I can form around my interest as opposed to people who I actually know in real life, which all these other services are about real life. Right. And the truth is real life matters the most. Like that's 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 true for the vast majority of people. But Twitter kind of has the, the market for knowing people that I'm interested in and they should make it as easy as possible to, to live in Twitter, to never leave that interface. Um, and the other thing, like, yeah, they've made messages more accessible, but they've had this ridiculous limitation on sending hyperlinks through right. 
through <laughs> direct messages for the last few months, right. which is infuriating. Right. It really, it's driving people away from direct messages. So yeah. something happened where I've heard that it was Dick Costolo himself got a DM with a spam Twitter link in it, and he clicked it. And I don't know that anything bad happened, but he was so infuriated that he he just said, "Shut it down. No, you know, no URLs and direct messages until you we can get the spam out." And it's months later, and it's still screwed up. It, it, it's it's yeah. I've I've had a few conversations where like I've actually resorted to like posting a text file on like Dropbox and like sending someone the link to it because. Like my only relationship with them is through Twitter, and it'd be weird to yeah. like, oh, can I get your like Skype name or something like that? Well, a lot of the DMs I get are people who I know, you know, I don't know in real life, but I know on the internet, and I know, you know, they're sending me links for possible links for Daring Fireball. Uh, that's the whole reason they send me DMs is the links, and so every, you know, it's funny to me to see the different things that people will do <laughs> yeah, um, to get it through. Right, like I have one guy who's a pretty good regular contributor, and his thing is he'll send it with three slashes: HTTP colon slash slash slash. Um, so it's not clickable. I can't click it, but I can copy and paste it, and then just delete the slash in the URL bar and. That's the idea. I usually put spaces in it, right. which I think is probably more annoying. Uh, yeah, because it, well, I don't know. All of them are annoying. All of them takes me back to like 1994, 93, when anytime you had anybody sent you a URL, you had to copy, paste, go to the browser app, paste, you know, and, and you know, it didn't take too long for you know indie Mac apps in the mid '90s to get you know like command it was command click usually on a URL and you could open it. Uh, it was a long time since I've had to copy and paste URLs, but Twitter DMs have have brought me back. It's 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 honestly it kind of blows my mind. It really, like, but it, the fact that it still is stuck like that months later, and everybody who uses DMs is bitches about it every day, just shows that Twitter still doesn't have their heart in messaging. Yeah. Uh, I think it's a lost opportunity for them. I agree. Because uh, how many users does Twitter have? Uh, I think they have like 100 million active, um, like 230 million total. Right. Like, yeah, I mean, that that's – the reality is, is like Twitter, Twitter is um, – and this pains me to say it because it's so important to me. Like they're in the most precarious state of all these guys. Like they, yes, they've gone public and they're, 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 you know, they had a nice run up in their stock price, but I'm not sure that was deserved. Uh, what, what's interesting about Twitter is so interesting because the, the potential is massive because they know, like, knowing what I'm interested in is way more valuable than knowing who I know. Mm. Like, you can market to me so much more effectively by knowing what I actually care about. And Twitter knows that. Yeah. The problem is getting people from day zero to a, curated following list that gives an accurate representation of what they're interested in is like devilishly hard. And I, I'm not, I still don't know what they're doing. If you, if like try going, open up an Incognita browser and go to twitter.com and like the homepage is just bleh. And like the sign up process is, yeah, I mean, it, it's, it, 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 there's a lot of room for improvement. I don't think opinion. they've, I still don't think they've solved the, uh, Explain to someone who's not on Twitter why they should be on Twitter. Yeah. Elevated that's, pitch. That's, that's a bit of a problem. But like MG Siegler and I were talking about uh, 
a few weeks ago. There, it, they still they have something that is amazing, which it, to me is best exemplified by the fact that when people are on TV uh, as guests on like a talk show, they show their Twitter name. Yep. Or or they show a hashtag, and the hashtag. I, I know that other you know the the one of the weird things about hashtags is you could use the same hashtag anywhere, and that Facebook is trying to get people to use hashtags too. Uh, you know, and so if I tried to promote a hashtag daring fireball, it would work anywhere where you can type plain text because it's not yep. a real metadata field. But it, it, when people see hashtags, I think they think Twitter. And I know totally. when you when you see uh, at Monkbent, you know it's a Twitter name, right? Yeah. Uh, which for anybody who's interested is is uh, Ben's Twitter handle. Right, M O N K B E N T, monk yes. monk bent, I guess. Yes, it's a monk yeah, bent T. Yeah, the bent T is definitely. You ben don't have Thompson. to explain it. Um, thank you. you. Uh, no, don't. it's it's, Skip it's, it. it's in an unfortunate encounter with a Spanish teacher in freshman year, freshman right. year of high school. So, <laughs> uh, let me just take a final break and thank our our last and final, last but not least, uh, our final sponsor. And that's Igloo. Let me tell you about Igloo. Igloo is an intranet, intranet that you will actually like. Uh, it's built with easy-to-use apps that help you work with your teams. Shared calendars, private Twitter-like microblogs, file sharing, and more. Uh, and it's all on their website. Uh, now, what they want me to talk to you about is SharePoint. Igloo partnered with Osterman Research to study the challenges businesses face when implementing SharePoint, which is an intranet package from uh, a little company in Redmond, Washington called Microsoft. Uh, they build a whole page about it, and you can see it here. Go to igloosoftware.com slash the talk show. Go there. They'll know you came from the show, and they have this whole sort of a, a – I don't want to call it a white paper because it's not written written in that white paper-ease language. It's uh, like a plain, plain, a real white paper. It's like written in English. Um, here's the five main results that this study showed. SharePoint doesn't work well on mobile. Um, that's something that Igloo does very well. They have responsive web design built into all the features of their platform. Everything you can do on the desktop, even administering the internet itself, you can do from the phone with a responsive design. Um, they also found that SharePoint is too expensive. It requires too many people. And here's the worst part, the most damning part, that no one ends up using it. People end up using the other things to work around all the things they don't like about SharePoint. Uh, so then you need all these third-party apps to do these things that you could be doing all through Igloo. Uh, check them out. And if you want to try Igloo, this is the most amazing thing. This is great. It is free to use forever with up to 10 people. Uh, and after that, after you, if you have a team of more than 10 people, it's very, very affordable after that. Uh, so it's better. It's got better features. It is mobile. It is mobile optimized. Works great on the desktop too. And you can try it for free uh, for up to 10 people. And then after that, it's very affordable. So go to igloosoftware.com slash the talk show. My thanks to them. All right. So I think we've done messaging pretty well. And, and now we have uh, just a, a few minutes. We could talk about Microsoft. Who, who you, now, you used to work at Microsoft. When did you leave? 
I left last summer, July 1st. Uh, in 2013? 20, 2013, yes. Wow, it feels like it's been longer. Just because yeah, well, I, I, know started, I know you haven't I been. I started the blog while I was still at Microsoft. Right. But, you, it, you know, obviously it picked up a lot once you left. Yeah. Well, it was uh, perfect timing because, like, a few weeks later they had the reorganization, yeah. um, which I wrote about, and that, that was a, you know, that, that – Got a lot of traffic, and then Balmer left, and then they bought Nokia. So it's been a very fruitful subject. So we were talking earlier in the show. We hint, we hinted at where we're going, but that um, that one of the all right, obviously a big a, the biggest problem Microsoft has is that the industry is shifting to mobile. Uh, the whole WhatsApp thing and messaging is just one 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 of many sides of it. Um. But everything's moving to mobile. I mean, that's where all the growth is. And that is a place where Microsoft has really just utterly failed to get traction at all. Uh, and that it's more, one of the things is that it's more than just that they don't have apps, you know, on, on Windows Phone. But that the apps, like you said, the apps they have just aren't that good. And it occurs to me that that situation that that's why it's this situation. That situation there is far worse for Microsoft than it was for Apple and the Mac back at let's say the the nadir of of the Mac market share wise in like ninety six, ninety seven, ninety eight. Is that even though the Mac was overwhelmed market share wise by Windows and by the 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 number of apps available, uh, the Mac still had Office. And it still had the whole Adobe suite and, you know, Quark Express and uh, Freehand and other design apps that were, uh, you know, really important to a lot of Mac users. And even if Mac Office was a little bit behind the Windows version, it was there. And the Adobe apps and the design apps always were, you know, parity or, or you know, the Mac versions were better. And the Mac always had throughout that whole time had an amazing indie community that was making truly top-notch apps for people mm -hmm. who really, really cared. You know, companies like Barebone Software with BB Edit, uh, Panic got started around you know the mid '90s, um, and then Omni. you know, yeah, Omni with that shift, yeah, perfect example. One now that's a little bit later than the '90s because that's you know, true. Is their next step, but yeah. that's still like early days of Mac OS X. Mac OS X was you know effectively a new platform and in 2001 and 2002 Mac OS 10 was a smaller platform than classic Mac OS. I forget yeah. when it was that Mac OS 10 actually had more active users than classic Mac OS, but it was not until 2003 or 2004 even. Um uh, and so you know when when Mac OS 10 was getting off the ground, yeah, then you had the Omni group uh you know, people like Brent Simmons, you know, who I work with now, so disclaimer, but, you know, Net Newswire came out in like 2002 uh, and was an amazing, amazing app. Yeah, just an amazing app that really, really changed, you know, the way I, I viewed the entire internet. Uh, and so they, you know, Windows, did, Windows and Windows Phone just don't have anything like that, especially Windows Phone. Yeah, this is, this is exactly... This is why I, I completely agree with you. Like the Apple was in way worse financial shape than Microsoft is now, and then than Microsoft will be for the foreseeable future. Um, the difference, though, is 
Apple's fate was in Apple's control. Like they just needed to make better products. And that's exactly what Steve Jobs was very good at. Well, and, and they came back. And they always had some people who were waiting for those products, who saw yes. that potential, you know? Yep. No, because they always had that 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 bit in the UI, that that bit in the experience right. that that would always appeal to some people. The problem for Microsoft right now is their problems are out of their control. Like they're dependent on developers that they can't control. Like they're they're de- they're dependent on consumers buying their devices that they can't make them buy them. Like and that's a that's a much worse position to be because they're like they could make literally the best phone on earth in every single dimension, and none of us would buy it, and justifiably so. Like uh, uh, Farhad Manju had a great column in in the Times, yeah. um, like yesterday, saying like reviewing the latest Nokia phone, saying this is an amazing phone, but I can't recommend it because the app situation. Yeah, and they can't change that. Right. Like, and that's that's and the problem. The problem is this is where like being in a good financial situation actually hurts because nothing helps you change what you're doing than like. Knowing you're going to have trouble making payroll in a few weeks, which right. is the case for Apple. Yeah, there's not too many factors on phone hardware design, right? There's camera quality, screen quality, uh, battery life, and performance, and storage. But storage is easy. I mean, that's yeah. you know, build quality, arguably. Right. Uh, build. Yeah, and build. Well, and let's and my Nokia definitely has build quality down. And they right? have camera quality, and they definitely have camera quality. Arguably, they're probably the one that can that you can argue. You know, you could make a strong case is beats the iPhone 5s. Mm-hmm. Uh, better at different things, but they're both excellent, right? It's a top tier camera. Uh, you know, and so like you said, you know, so what's left? Screen and performance, and you know, I I can't judge this new one that that Farhad uh, reviewed, but. You know, it might have. Let's just let's just concede that it has leading the leading performance, good battery life, and a and a great screen. That's not enough, right? You can't. You don't buy the device. You really don't. I mean, the the device definitely matters, but it's the overall experience, and the overall experience is is largely about apps. Yeah. What's the other thing that's interesting about this is, um. And I made this point in in the uh, in the first episode of the new podcast, again, uh, Exponent.fm, um, is what's what ultimately brought the Mac made the Mac a viable platform again. Again, like just to be clear, like even it, if you're in Silicon Valley, you only see Macs, so it's easy to think like they're dominating. It, the Windows still dominates. Um, this in the PC in in the, the like the laptop desktop form factor. Um, but what made the Mac a viable platform was the web. Like, right. because all the applications that matter now ran everywhere. And what's what's interesting for Microsoft is like they have to be the ones that are most they should be the ones who are most distressed that the mobile web hasn't taken off in a meaningful way from an application standpoint. Because that would be their salvation. Like that and yeah. and what they should be spending their resources on is they should be doing two things. And it, it, like this seems so so this will you know that they've they've woken up if you see these two things one they need to give up on IE like they need to give up on the trident rendering engine they need to ad- adopt webkit and quite frankly like apple could use the help like they've lost like google's 
forked it. They're going with Blink. Um, Microsoft and Apple ought to work together on the future of WebKit because Microsoft cannot afford – like, I to be clear, I has done a lot to be standards compliant. Like, it's it's not a terrible browser like you think it is. Um, but that doesn't matter. It's not a battle that they can afford to fight. Like, they they need to run every website perfectly uh, with all – not just from standards perspective, but also with the WebKit quirks perspective. Right. And – then two, like they need to take all these resources that are focused on trying to prop up their app store and funnel them into like making web apps into something that's meaningful because that's the only possible way back in my perspective um, is where web apps actually become something that's meaningful on mobile. And then it doesn't matter because yeah, I think that's unlikely though. I, I agree. I think it's unlikely. I, no, I mean, that's why I think the big picture, they should just, yeah. And I'll, no, I, that's, I a, that's a good point. There, so I see two, I see three ways forward. One would be to somehow get developer traction for Windows phone apps. And I, I, I don't see that happening. I don't see any way they can do it. They can't bribe it. And, and I, I don't see it. So I, that's one, it, it's possible, but I, I don't think it's going to happen. No, two, I agree. The, the thing that people don't realize is like the return on investment from improving your iOS app or your Android app is so much greater than building a new one. Mm-hmm. Like it's not just it's not just the oh you finished the first two now you're going to build a third. Mm-hmm. Like the the equation never works in their favor. Yeah. Um, two would be what you said would be some sort of way that 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 like what happened with web apps on the desktop in the '90s through the you know early 2000s. Uh, like where where big new things, a startup or a big new service or something, was almost always in that era uh, a website. You know, Facebook is a is a fine example of it. Even you know was later. It was you know mid two thousands. But what was Facebook? It was a website. It was a thing where you went to your browser and typed facebook dot com and you went there. And so anybody could you know Mac or Windows could use it. Whereas a decade earlier, Facebook would have been a Windows app, and Mac users might have been locked out. Mm-hmm. I think the last big thing I can remember that was a Windows app was Napster. It you know obviously had an That's online right. component, but there wasn't a native Na- Mac Napster client. But That's interesting because I, I was still on Windows then. So I was I, on I the Mac. Think about but yeah. this is where the indie Mac community took it up, and you know Napster it, Napster didn't want to lock Mac users out. They were just focused on, you know, where most of the people were, which was Windows. And so it was just, you know, it's the same reason. It's not that people necessarily don't even want, you know, you know, like I, I guess Instagram has a Windows phone client now, but it, it didn't take them a long time because they wanted to lock them out. It just wasn't worth their attention yet. And that's right. what the Mac was. But the indie Mac community had a couple of, Pretty good Napster clients. Uh, forget the names of them. I'm sure my readers. The thing about Napster, them. just like it was an amazingly well designed app. The, yeah, but the Mac clients were even better. There were I, could ima- well, I, I could think imagine. there's one called Maxter. I forget the name of it. But there were that at least sounds, two or three. That sounds like what an indie Mac club. Yeah, there were like two or named. three of them, and and they were good enough that you could you know you could do the thing, which was you typed in a song name and got a bunch of results, and you know. Drag them to your desktop, and now you had the music on your desktop. So, did you used to do the download MP3s by FTP thing, like pre Napster? No. 
So I think this was I was in college then. So that like which is like the the ground zero for this sort of stuff. Um, so used to there were these sites you would go to and you would get people's FTP addresses and then you'd use an FTP client. You'd go to their site. They'd have like a whole lot, all tons of music that you could download. Like it was in retrospect, like totally bizarre. Um, so from that perspective, when Napster came along, like it was unbelievable. Like it was like going from a old school phone to an iPhone. Like it was right. like, it was so unbelievable. And then, of course it made it so much more accessible to everyone. Um, oh, fond memories. It, well, it was sort of like Google where, you know, the search results used to be, you, you'd have to reasonably expect to hunt through 20 search results to find the thing you were looking for. And yeah. it felt amazing because, oh my God, now, you know, you'd go to uh, Alta Vista and you would type this query. And, and if you spent, you know, 10, 20, 30 seconds eyeballing the results, you would find the thing you're looking for. And you were, you were like 30 seconds away from almost all the information you could imagine. And then all of a sudden Google came along and you were two seconds away from anything <laughs> you could imagine. And you didn't really have to eyeball it. You just see it right there at the top of the list. And that's what Napster was, right? Instead of having to hunt for Keith Richards version of run, run Rudolph, uh, you know, which is a, uh, it used to be before digital music was like this epically hard B side of a single from 1978 yeah. to fun. You just type "Run Run Rudolph" into Napster, and there it is at the top. You know, and it was a pretty, it, was, it was it was unbelievable, and it was it a pretty was good like, rip. Yep. Uh, but I remember, but you know, but that's where the indie Mac community really stepped in, and maybe it, Mac was you know every every once in a while something would maybe break down because Napster would change something and Windows would pick up the change right away and it took a while for the Mac guys to do it but after that though things were web apps you know at least the big new thing so you didn't feel left out yeah and you could get a Mac and and interchange uh you know with people using the mass market using Windows uh I don't see that happening on mobile I really no, don't I agree. because I, agree. I just it, it I think it was always an aberration. I always thought that, and it's the the, the UI uh, I, critic in me always saw web apps as this gross. Uh, completely agree. Completely know. agree. The, 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 no, I, I. This is a. I know this is controversial, but to me, it, it's it's so obvious. Like the problem is, people were scared to install applications. Because the whole right. like virus thing, right. and it was hard to acquire them. Like it was the app store. It's the app store that killed yep. the web as the main thing. Yeah. And because apps are better. Like there's there's just like any sort of technical or UI or any sort of way you look at it, an app is going to be better. No. Like but it's you, easy, it's, once you, you get updating and yeah. You ahead. can't you just cannot under emphasize the fear the and rightly so that most people had Mac or Windows. Mac or Windows, but especially Windows, about installing new software because yep. they eventually would get burned. You know that you, you know, and I, I know that it's you not. You just a, need to do it once. Not a problem with modern Windows, but for a long time the DLL conflicts, uh, just so many things that you could run into, and that you you could eventually slow down your computer, and there was no way to undo it. You know that uninstall was not uninstalling everything. Yeah. Um, and that you'd have things running in the background, and that the 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 freedom of the app store, and yes, it is limiting. Where now apps, there are cool things that an app that can do whatever it wants on your system, you know, uh, 
you know, great stuff on. There's so many, you know, and that's why the Mac and iOS deserve to be different, you know. But you can right. install. We're, we're, hi, we're hijacking this conversation right now, like right, which you're not allowed to do. Right, that you can install Audio Hijack Pro uh, or or um, uh, or or Skype call recorder, and while you're in, yeah, or Piezo. And while you're in one app, record the audio stream from another. And you can't do that on iOS because they're all sandbox. But it's that freedom that it, it helps normal people know, you know, you, in, you can install these apps willy-nilly and it will not slow your device down. And you won't uh, get a virus. Right. And if, you, and if you decide you don't like the game, just uh, hold your finger down on it and hit the X and it's gone. And you know it's really gone. And it doesn't have all this stuff, the detritus that it's left behind. And it's the it's the remnants of that fear that that fuel this whole the whole uh, uh, unbelievable still persistent uh, thing that you're not supposed to leave your apps running in iOS and that every you know every half an hour or so you should uh, double click the home button and right. delete all the th- apps that are running. Although, given the way that iOS seven crashes, it might be good advice at this point. But no, no, I I, com- I completely agree, and I think it's what. It, one of the classic mistakes that people make in general is is they attribute like success in one area like they don't consider all the things that might have contributed to it and so they think like oh web apps were successful because it lets you build once deploy everywhere easily update and the people saying this are developers for whom this was a big advantage it was a, it's a it's very great to deploy everywhere it's great to be able to update easily but unless you can be kind of empathetic and put yourself in this in the shoes of some of the end user, only then can you realize that they don't give a shit about that. Right? Uh, they give a shit about you know not getting a virus, about having their d- data available everywhere, um, and not and that sort of thing. And and once that's taken care of, that means what's more important is it a developer's life being easy or is it having a responsive, enjoyable to use application? And it's the latter, and yeah. which means they prefer an app. If anything, I think that over the last, is it six years or five years, whatever the app store era is, I guess it was announced six years ago, but it didn't. 2008. Sh- yeah, it was announced in 2008, but didn't ship until the June. Uh, so let's call it six years, but the last five, six years, the app, the mobile app era. I think that it's more native app focused today than it was then. Because Agreed. because like the, the, all the people who were insistent that it would eventually go to mobile web have yep. finally kind of given up the ghost. Yeah, there were a lot of people who thought I'm not going to go in for this because it's going to do it's going to follow the desktop where it's going to go to the web. Uh, you know, a lot of them have given up. And Facebook, to circle back to the beginning of the show, is a perfect example where I think yep. I think Zuckerberg had a a sort of come to Jesus moment two years ago or so, and saw that mobile was not going to be like the web, and that native apps really mattered, and that they shifted a lot of their development from like, you know, and they did a great job for HTML five web views in a native app. They did a great job, but that it wasn't good enough. And that's when yeah. they went on this aqua hiring spree and hired. And this is why, like this, like I, I think Mark Zuckerberg is, is fantastic. And what makes him a fantastic CEO is he has repeatedly demonstrated the ability to change his mind in the face of evidence. Yes. I and agree. like it, it, that sounds so obvious, like th- what someone should do, but 
you know, there's the old saying, like, if someone's paid to think one thing, or I can't remember exactly what it is, but, like, it's very hard, in fact, to do. And and he has repeatedly shown that he's willing to give up, you know, what what seems to be right for him or what he thought previously if new evidence presents itself. And I find that very admirable. Yeah, I totally agree. And I think some of it, too, is that he has a good gut. And I think, for example, hiring Mike Mattis and um, the other guys from Push Pop Press a couple years ago, uh, you know, and now who work there and they're the guys behind paper. I think it was a gut thing, you know, that I, you know, that and and the another, you know, aqua hire, he, you know, was the sofa was Mm -hmm. um, big Mac indie. Uh, very, very good design quality uh, thing. It, it wasn't because he wanted those products or wanted new products. It was like, I want talent like this making apps for Facebook. And that, yeah. that's more of a gut thing than a, I have a specific, rational, here's the thing I want them to build. No, totally. Because the things that make sense end up are often not rational in the present. Like, if they were rational, then everyone would do them, and which makes them less valuable. Um, but I have to say, I, I loved your discussion of paper. Like, uh, I haven't, I haven't heard you so excited, like just like giddy about a, about a product and just like geeking out over a UI, uh, in a long time. That was like, I, I, I found that, that podcast absolutely delightful. Uh, well, thank you. I enjoyed talking about it. I got to write. So have you signed up? Have you signed up for Facebook? No. (laughs) (laughs) You said you were going to. I know, but I'm I'm scared. (laughs) <laughs> is this the quote you were thinking of, Upton Sinclair? It is yes. difficult to get a man to understand something when his salary depends upon his not understanding it. Exactly. And it's, I think that often applies to like sort of a rank and file, but I think it's true for leaders as well. You know, and I, you know, let's, you know, especially let's, for a young CEO, right? Well, let's name the obvious counterexample Steve Ballmer. Mm-hmm. Right, like how many times in the under his CEO ship did he change his mind? <laughs> I don't know. Very, maybe not many, maybe none. I don't know. Not a big change like that, you know. And you know, and I Gary that you be, Facebook being a young company and him being a young CEO, I think makes it even harder, right? Yeah, because people are you know Wall Street skeptical, especially because you know Facebook got off to such a rough start. You know, like their their stock tanked. Like they were, like there's a ton of criticism. Um, you know, and like even more, you you like the natural human inclination is kind of want to be a people pleaser and like make investors happy and to retain the ability to be flexible and to and to adjust in the face of reality. Um, I, I find very very impressive. Yeah, um, Ben Evans had a post this week on some of the advantages that that it, specifically in the context of mobile but i think it applies to all apps i mean messaging it was the context that he, he was talking about but you know what are the advantages to mobile for messaging i think it applies to all apps but some of them are um it's so much easier to get at photos because your photo library is right there on the device and there's an API to get it. Whereas on the desktop, it was always a pain in the ass. People had to, you know, because there was no central location for photos. And, you know, especially for the web browser, you'd have to use like a weird upload form and expect the user to click a button and then navigate to the photos in 
uh, an open or, you know, an open dialogue box and it's all yep. just IMG underscore zero six two five dot JPEG. Uh, right. It was, you know, it was a pain. Whereas now you go, you know, photo, you know, f- you know, d- give this app permission to your photos. Yes. Boom. Here's your photos and you see the thumbnails. The preview. Yep. And, uh, as I pointed out yesterday, the other big thing, it's not just that it has access to your photo library. It has access to your camera because the device itself is your camera. It's mm-hmm. your main camera. And so if you want to take a new photo, you don't even have the photo yet. You can do it right there in the app. You don't even have to leave the app. The app will let you take the picture right there. That's it. Desktop has nothing like that. And I don't think the mobile, I, I, I think it's unlikely that the mobile web is going to get that. Um, no, I agree. Well, this is, this is, um, you know, this is something that's really interesting about the Facebook and WhatsApp thing. Um, just to, just to quickly rewind at the beginning of the conversation is remember a couple years ago how Facebook was all about making everything public and like they added people can right. follow you and the defaults to the public and there was a lot of outcry about it. And they did that, I think, with a PC mindset where if you were going to post on Facebook from a PC, by definition, because it was such a relatively speaking pain in the ass to upload a photo, you were only going to post the best photos. Right. And you were only going to post, you know, things that you had kind of thought about before you threw them up there. And so it made sense if Facebook was thinking about growth, it made sense to kind of move from a just not just your private network, but being more of a almost like taking over the blog space, right? Like people, there are people who see Facebook as like their blog, right? And they, that's where they broadcast, they broadcast something. This is actually way more prevalent than you might think. And this is this is this is what I get by looking over my wife's shoulder is the way she uses Facebook. Like she follows a ton of people who she doesn't know, but who who use Facebook as a broadcast channel. What's interesting now is that actually what that did to the Facebook brand is it made it a brand that you didn't trust. Like you yep. were never sure if what you did on Facebook was private or not. And that made it impossible for them to break into this messaging space in a meaningful way because that has to be private. Yep. Like what I'm saying to my wife has to be private. Yeah. There's or a definite saying, trust issue. You know, and we, no, exactly. I think I mentioned this a few weeks ago. I forget who I was talking to, but I, I it might be a repeat, but I think it's worth repeating is that, um, as we work on sync for Vesper, we thought about how are you going to sign in? And the easiest, the easiest way for like a custom, you know, if it's not going to be iCloud where you don't have to sign in, if it was a custom thing, the easiest thing to do would be to use something like Facebook and Twitter and sign in with Twitter and Facebook. Um, Cause then you don't have to create a new account and a new password and remember it. You just say sign in with Facebook and you go to Facebook and uh, you say authorize this app and you bounce back to the app and then you're in. Uh, but we did, you know, obviously not scientific, but did some casual polling of friends and family. And it was almost unanimous that among, especially among non-technical people, it, they, they hate that. And especially yeah. Facebook because uh, they don't trust it. That's simple. That they don't. They don't. They they almost. They try never to sign into other apps with Facebook because they just assume that if they do, that unwanted stuff is going to get posted to Facebook publicly. And uh, that, that's so interesting. It, you know, and it's it, it was a real eye opener that they don't see it as a convenience to having another site with their email and a password. Um, 
they see that you know using your email address is better because they know that they're the only ones who read their email. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was a real eye opener. They just don't trust it, and not not like they don't trust it. They don't use Facebook. They just don't. They just assume though, you know, that Facebook is only safe for stuff that you you assume will eventually be made public somehow. Yeah. And what's interesting, like, I mean, that, but that was a reasonable thing for Facebook to do in the PC era because it was such a pain in the ass to upload stuff, yeah. right? Like you yeah. weren't going to upload. You had, a, you had a chance to think before you uploaded stuff, yeah. right? But in the mobile area where everything, like this device is always with you all the time, like you're liable to, to take pictures and post all kinds of stuff. And, um, and yeah, so that, that's why WhatsApp will never be branded Facebook. Like the biggest advantage of WhatsApp is it's not called Facebook. Yeah. I totally agree. I think that's very, very, I think it's essential to it. Uh, so let's go back. So what what are the Microsoft options to get apps or software developed for Windows Phone? So first was to actually get people, to developers, to, to really engage and write native apps for Windows Phone. Not going to happen, I don't think. Second would be for web apps to really take off cross-platform, and then they could just piggyback on Android and iOS as developers make web apps. I don't think that's going to happen. Uh, which brings us to number three, which you've written about. Uh, Charles Arthur had a piece in The Guardian. There was a counter-argument ar- in Ars Technica um, by Peter Bright. Peter Bright. Uh, which is that I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to present this as the two, two ways of doing the same thing. Uh, Charles Arthur said what Microsoft should do is fork Android, pretty much pull an Amazon. And just fork the open source version of Android, or Android, and do their own Microsoft version of Android, and replace all of the stuff that, like, when you get a Google Play version of Android, where it all hooks up to, you know, with default, it goes to Gmail and has Chrome, and you know, Google Sign in. Replace that all with Microsoft services, and you would get, you know, Bing and Windows Live Email, uh, and all that stuff. Now. Second version of the same argument is that, and and there are rumors that Microsoft is actually the second one seems more likely to me, which is that they should they can stick with Windows Phone as the OS, but have a runtime layer to run Android apps. Mm-hmm. I to me it's two it's six of one half a dozen of the other. I think it's a little bit more likely that they would go the latter route because I think they would want to control. I think they would want to control the lower levels of the OS. Not that they wouldn't control a, an open source Android fork, but that they uh, they already have it with Windows. They don't need a new kernel. Right. It's the apps that matter. Uh, what say you? Well, first, just a, a technical, like a small point. Like I, I, my main question would be if they did like the latter option, um, running Android apps on Windows with a, you know, like a runtime for those apps. Like, what's the performance going to be like? That would be my main, right. my main question. Like, it, of course, it's fine on a Windows 8 device that has an Intel processor, which is massively more powerful than the ARM processors. Um, but, uh, uh, you know, but on a on a phone, which is has, the, has that smaller processor, is it going to be performant? That would be... My main question. Yeah, I, you um, never know. I would. I, again, I wish you know. I wish I could quick dial in John Syracuse or someone a little bit more technically minded. I think because 
Android apps are fundamentally Java apps, you know, and I know that the you know, there's the whole lawsuit with Oracle and that they don't really use the official Java trademark runtime. They, they, you know, have the Dalvik version and there's the second one, you know, they have a new one that to replace Dalvik, but because Android itself doesn't run native apps, it's, you're not emulating, you, you know, all they need is a, a, API right. Android is runtime. an emulator, like basically, right. from, for all his purposes. Yeah. Right. So my understanding, I think, you know, with the way Java works, that it, I, I think they, it's certainly technically feasible that they could be uh, performant. Yeah. That was well, okay. Well, so let's let's assume that it is. Um, I that that's probably the case. Um, that that would probably be preferable. For them, um, you know that you know. The, I imagine controlling the kernel is important to them. Um, so, regardless, uh, it would be a significant step. So, I, I think it's fair to 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 lump those two together. Um, regardless, in either case, uh, it's not a totally free lunch, right? Like, it's not like they automatically get all the Android apps, right? Because the Android apps depend on the Google Play Store. And I'm relatively certain that Google is not going to uh, develop a version of the Play Store for Windows. Right. You would um, still need the developers to actually submit the apps to the Microsoft you know, App Store. Right. And they're going to have to change a few API calls and things like that. I think what uh, Bright oversold in the Ars Technica article in particular is the number of changes that developers would have to make. Like, I think it, it actually would be relatively trivial um, from a developer perspective to support this new runtime if Windows, if Microsoft added it. Um, but the fact is, you're going to have to go out and do that. And there is a burden on developers. They have to maintain an additional, like, they're, they're all maintaining an additional version of the app. Um, but that said, if I'm going to developer, and this was my job at Microsoft, I did developer relations. Um, if you're going to developer, it's a whole lot easier to say, uh, can you just change these couple of lines in the API uh, and submit it here, and and you're going to get upside, you know, from from sales to new customers, versus can you make a completely new app in a runtime that you're not familiar with, uh, and you might have to hire a new person, um, and oh, by the way, like we don't really have any good evidence of people making it big on this platform. Um, you know, like it's it's a Herculean effort. And, um, you know, it was something that... <laughs> so I worked on Windows 8. The run-up to Windows 8, like we had a bit of a story, like saying like, well, Windows has all this, you know, potential and Windows just sells. There's going to be all these markets. And we got a lot of good wins on board. Once it actually came out, uh, it got a whole lot more difficult. And uh, just the degree of difficulty in talking to a developer, to me, makes it a, a no-brainer for sure. Here's my take. And maybe I'm off base because – and this is me speaking from somebody who's lifelong persnickety user interface obsessive. And which is the main reason why I was – I never wavered from using a Mac. Uh, even when Apple was in trouble, even when the machines, you know, were were compared very poorly, price for performance, without question, right? I was never deluded about that. 
And even when the OS was really on shaky underpinnings and, and you know, you faced things like uh, the whole system locking up when the browser locked up. Yeah. Because I liked, I couldn't, I couldn't bear the gross interface of Windows, even with Windows 95 and 98. It was just, it was just too grossly designed to me. I couldn't take it. Is that Android apps running on Windows Phone are never going to fit in right they're, they're you know it's like running a windows app on mac you know like when you run parallels or something like that sure it works but it's gross right it doesn't fit in it doesn't use the same uh sharing you know when you go you know android has its own way of sharing uh, you know in advance one of the you know nice selling points of android uh even versus ios is the the inter-application sharing right intense yeah right uh you know, and Windows has its own version of that, but they're different. You know, it's a mismatch. You're gonna, it's gonna look like you're running an Android app on on Windows, and I I think that's unpalatable. Now, it might be that I'm off base on that because all the people who care about stuff like that are all using iPhones anyway. Yeah, no, I think I Here, think there is something to that. Oh, sorry, go ahead. Well, I, just I mean, the, the end of that point is the one area where that doesn't matter and where this might help is games because games. games it doesn't matter games aren't really apps they don't use the you know the, the sharing and the framework and all that stuff doesn't matter the games almost always have their own ui for everything anyway yep flappy birds right would have worked perfectly so that's you know it's just a funny little example it's a stupid little thing we're all gonna by next week we're gonna f probably have forgotten about flappy birds but that flappy birds was an example where windows phone missed out on it no, and it, it, yeah, and that, that's what kills it is it's stuff exactly like Flappy Birds, where there's this thing out there and everyone hears about it and it's not a Windows phone. Right. Or you walk into Cisco, or not Cisco, um, Costco, and uh, and you, there's a massive poster on the wall. It says download our app and it says, and there's an icon for iOS, and there's an icon for Android, and there's not for Windows phone. Like it's just this constant kind of reinforcement that there's a lack that is that is that's it's devastating yeah. and um and it, it, the problem is is like the problem the reason I bring up the Costco example is uh, one of the things that that people that's hard to get about marketing in the way that by marketing I mean like advertising about advertising the way it works is there. Advertising in a lot of ways is kind of like water running over limestone, like it wears it down <laughs> over like centuries. Um, and that's why you have like McDonald's ads all the time. That's why you have the Kleenex coupon in every Sunday paper. It's not that they're getting a return on any one ad. And that's why it's okay. They and that's why Apple runs ads all the time. It's the repetition, like repetition matters. Yeah. yeah. And the repetition of reminders that Windows Phone isn't a meaningful platform. Like, any one example, fine, you can explain it away, but it's the repetition that kills it. And, um, and yeah, no, I agree. Like, the, the especially on Windows, I think the difference is magnified because Windows, like, the metro environment is so different than Android in particular. Yeah, to its um, credit, as design-wise, speaking as a designer, you know, and it's... it's you know, largely praised, you know, and it is original. It is not a copy of iOS or Android. Yeah. But it's different, but that means the apps would stick out. This, I mean, I know this is like, so leaving that, one one concern I personally have, and it's not shared widely, so take it for what it's worth. Um, being at Microsoft, I used a Windows phone regularly. 
Um, I don't like it. Uh, I think it reviews very well uh, in day-to-day use. I found it limiting and frustrating, but I might be an exception there. It might be fantastic as everyone has reviewed it and saying it's great. Well, that, that was sort of my – I, so. I used I, I used one for like a month and a while ago, and that, that was sort of my take on it. I didn't love it. Yeah. I liked it better than Android, though. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean it. It uh, they all have their strengths and weaknesses. Um, I thought it also had. I, mean, I thought it also suffered poorly from a, a density of information. Yes, you know that yes. it used these big friendly fonts and big friendly things, and and like you said, it reviews well. It looks very friendly, but then it ends up that you just see fewer stuff on screen at once. And it just gets annoying. Yeah. The other thing too is I I can't stand like soft buttons, yeah. Like so I and especially that goddamn search button in the bottom always triggering Bing. Yeah. Like every time I opened up any app that had a search function and there was both a soft button for Bing and a, another button for search within the app, like it like it just it just hurt me. <laughs> like, I I maybe because I have iOS habits where I I used to assuming the safe the bottom of the screen is safe every time i've tried using for you know not just for days but you know a couple of weeks at a time a, a non ios device with soft buttons i trigger it constantly right by typing because yep. when i go to get the space my thumb i hit underneath and then i you know i've hit the home button or search or something you know you shift, shift you know the, i don't know whatever so, I, right? I have very meaty hands uh, yeah. like i have these thick like ugly fingers and massive palms which means i just using the phone i trigger it all the time right. the second time uh, it happens it's it didn't the first time you think Ooh, what was that was that me and the second time you want to throw the phone against the wall exactly yeah. it, like it's yeah it's not just like a little annoyance it's a yeah it's a throw the phone annoyance and i don't know i guess because there's obviously people <laughs> have phones that they haven't thrown against the wall for a long time <laughs> so maybe people get used to it i never did i i don't like soft buttons and i thought that was a mistake i thought they that that windows phone copied the wrong thing there i agree that they should have gone uh i i also don't like the i've written and too long for this show can't get into it I hate the whole back mutton metaphor i think they should have ignored that agree I, I think and the, the other thing we go into is like why the home button on ios will never go away and anyone who says that they should get rid of it like doesn't un, doesn't grok ios yeah i agree it's a safety escape Exactly. Right. Like you can, it's always there. Right. To me, it's the it's the Einstein quote: "Everything should be as simple as possible, but not more so," uh, or, or paraphrase or whatever. But to me, it's uh, a quote. It's genius because it doesn't quite have a logical meaning. But to me, what it means is don't take simplicity, you know, too far. Uh, yeah. I think we talked about it when we were talking about the paper app. That you can make an app that literally has no buttons, you know, like the clear app, the clear to do app. But then it, it just feels almost like a, a gimmick to me. It's mm-hmm. like, whereas paper has almost no buttons, but then when you want to like post something, there's a button there that just says post and it's a button yeah. and it's exactly what you want. They didn't take it too far. So you could say, man, wouldn't it be great to have a phone with no buttons? Man, that would be amazing. There's the ultra minimal, and that you can imagine some kind of way that you could make a version of iOS that didn't have a home button, uh, and then you'd have this ultra minimal no button. And you know what? That's too few buttons because yep. people love that one button. No, you know, yeah, I, I gestures. 
I, I, I think gestures are only workable as a secondary interaction. Yeah, it's for they're it, like keyboard shortcuts. They're all for power users. Exactly. Every one of them. Every everything other than single tap and one finger drag up and down is a power user feature. And th- this is the thing with Windows 8. Beyond the beyond the whole like gluing two interfaces that were totally different together, like it was so gesture dependent. It was like um you know, it was like delivering an interface where the only way around was it, it was almost like returning to the terminal. Like the only way around was using the keyboard. Yep. Like you have to have the thing you can see and can point or tap, tap yeah. or touch. Yeah. One thing that they never lost with iOS, even with the redesign in iOS seven, is that you never need to do anything with more than one finger. And you never need to do anything with more than one tap. You can double tap like to zoom in a web page. But if you don't know that, you'll be fine because you can yep. pinch. Pinching does take two fingers, but it's natural, right? Yeah. People, it, it, it makes sense. You it can make, figure it out. You can figure it out. And everything else is a thing you can see on the screen and tap. And yep. so, you know, there's stuff like notification center that you have to use a just an edge gesture from the side to get. Uh, and the new control center from the bottom. But you don't, that's just shortcuts. And I swear, I know there's so many people out there who are going to say that's not for power users. And I'm telling you, at some level, it is because what you, a lot of people can still do is tap the home button, go to settings. Yep. Go exactly. To, there's, an, there's another way to do it. Right. It might be slower, but an explicit this, way. Yep. This is why, by the way, I think Safari is the worst of the new apps. Hmm. Because it's, it, I am I am definitely a power user, and I still get confused about how to bring up the address bar and the command bar. Hmm. It's not obvious, and it's not clear how to do it. And it's not as terrible as it could be because if you touch in on the if you muck around, it will come up. Yeah. But that's the weakness in it is that there's not an explicit path that's always available to the user. Are you okay with it on the iPad though? Because it's uh, a lot yeah, more it, explicit there. No, exactly. And, and I was fine with that on iOS six too. Like I think, I, I think they took it too far to minimize the Chrome. Exactly. Right. Exactly. Well, and the big one to me that still gets me, uh, and I've been using iOS seven full time since sometime in July. Yeah, still gets me is iCloud tabs, because on the Mac there's a cloud button. That brings down your list of open tabs and other devices. And on the iPad, there's a cloud button that brings down a list of your tabs on other devices. But on the iPhone, you have to hit the plus button to make a new window and then scroll down underneath all your windows and then just magically there hovering over your your uh, fogged over desktop or wallpaper is the list of open tabs. Well, I mean, open tabs on other devices are kind of a power feed. Power user feature, anyways. So yeah, I think, but it's I think so it's, okay it's such that. a mismatch, though, to the way you get it from the other two devices, where there's a cloud yeah. button that brings up the list, yeah. whereas they're just there floating underneath your tabs and still. No, I'm I, I'm happy to agree with you that Safari on the iPhone is uh, could be a lot better. Well, I don't. I I I still like it. I still think it's pretty good. I I don't know. Maybe I do question whether they've. I, and I like the new tab interface a lot. I love it, actually. Yeah, I but agree. I, I, well, to be I fair, question, I, I, I question the, the Chrome hiding. Yeah, I, no, I, I use I switched to Safari on, so I use Chrome on on Mac uh, on the Mac, but I do Safari on iOS devices. One, it's it is it's 
stupidly faster. Um, but two, uh, the I I don't find the Chrome interface the if you want a confusing interface, there's a whole another one right there. Okay. So it's it's a mess in general. All right. Uh all right, let's wrap it up. So do, what do you think about the Android, Windows Phone running Android apps? Here's my, I think it would help with games. I definitely think it would help with games. Uh, but then what's the point? Well, I, that, I don't know that this solves any problem for them. No, I completely agree. The problem is that Microsoft's not going to make money on licensing the OS. Right. Like that's just never going to happen. Right. You just wrote, I, I'm 99% sure it was you who just wrote that, look, the whole thing, Go to the bottom line. The bottom line, the whole reason they made Windows Phone in the first place or call it Windows Mobile or whatever is on the assumption that they could license it to OEMs for 10 bucks a pop. Right. That's the whole reason it exists is we'll make an OS, phones will run it, we'll license it for 10 bucks a pop, and there'll be a billion of them, and then we'll have $10 billion. And guess what? Android took all the air out of that where like the licensing value of an OS is like $2. Yeah, no, exactly. I mean, it's whatever the the the, the patent fees they pay to Microsoft, right? And you're competing um, against and and in and and the other thing too is and it's a big difference. And I think it's a bl- I think it was a blind spot to Microsoft is that in the real low end markets, uh, you know, all throughout Asia, China, for example, where they use the the open source version of Android where they don't pay any licensing fees to Google. They don't even pay the 75 cent, you know, device activation or, or inspection fee. They don't pay any patent royalties to Microsoft because they're in countries that have different IP protection levels. Um, they're not paying anything to anybody. Yep. And so it's zero. And in the PC era, uh, uh, it didn't fly like that. What the what the people who wanted a zero license fee did for their PCs was pirate a version of Windows, and Microsoft got some value out of that because it was you know they were either paying for Windows or they were pirating Windows, but it was Windows everywhere. Yep, and that's not going to happen. On no, exactly. The, the the Android of the PC era era was pirated Windows, right? Like, which is like, yeah, maybe we're not actually making money, but it's a we're nice not. it's a nice problem to have though. Right? Exactly. It exactly. really, you know, it, it it's it, it it's a funny argument to make, but it, Microsoft was far better served from that because it helped make it helped it just at least helped build the Windows. Uh, how do you pronounce the word? The ecosystem. Hegemony. Yeah. Hegem. Hegemony. 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 Whatever. I, I actually, I have no idea. It's a wonderful word, but I don't know how to pronounce it. <laughs> We're problematic together on a podcast. We know way too many words, right? Uh, their meaning and not their pronunciation. Well, we, it goes right back to the beginning. You can uh, send me the uh, phonetic spelling of it. <laughs> I don't. I didn't teach any Chinese kids uh, hegemony. Hegemony. No, I just looked it up. It's a. G, it's a soft G, like uh, like GIF. GIF is GIF. <laughs> I was always right on that. No, it's um, GIF. So here's the thing with Microsoft. Like, I think big, big picture, um, like, there, if you back out and, like, say, what's the point? There is nothing to be gained from Windows Phone. There's the purchase of Nokia was throwing good money after bad. Uh, there's no money made. For, the only way you make money by selling a device is if you're highly differentiated, like, I, like iPhones are. If you're not, it's a commodity device. You're gonna, it's a race to the bottom, and you don't want to be in that business. Microsoft knows that very, very well. Like they've forgotten what they know yeah. in the like 
assumption they have to be an OS company. Right. Like they need to be a services company. They need to be Apple's absolute best friend. Like, uh, you know, get Bing on iOS in exchange for Office. Get uh, Azure services built into Xcode. Like they need, this is the sort of stuff they need to like be thinking about. Yeah. Um, Google will never let them in. So yes, yep. it makes sense to do something on the low end to compete with that. But at the end of the day, like, it, like what's the point? And the problem is the BlackBerry problem is going from where I'm at now to where I need to be in three to four years. There's this valley where I'm not making any money or I'm losing money. And it's really hard to cross that valley. And the problem is the longer you wait because it's hard to cross, the more your kind of inherent advantage on the other side start to dissipate. Hmm. And the problem for Microsoft and the big danger they face right now is the longer they wait to kind of capitalize on what they have, whether that be Office, whether that be Bing, whether that be the maps that they have, the longer they wait, the more those become commoditized as well. And when they finally go across that valley, they find that the pot of gold that might have been there has dissipated. And it's it's really getting to crunch time for them and what makes it so hard is they make so much money still especially in the enterprise that there's not that like life threatening like we're going to go out of business if we don't make a change that apple faced in the 90s they don't have that yet and I, it's I, I think the best way they can manage it is to to view you know just separate legacy and future and just run the PC business separately and just not run it into the ground, but run it into the sunset and mm -hmm. focus, refocus windows. And I think they're doing this with what everything I've heard about windows 8.1, at least in some small degree that they're shifting it back away from the changes and back towards let's make the traditional windows user happy. And let's just, you know, concentrate on making Windows happy for the people who want to use a PC with a keyboard and a mouse and and focus separate efforts on everything new. Yep. And no, I agree. That, that's exactly right. But the thing is, I think they need to give up on the OS dream. Like, and they need to figure out how can we Well, on everything money. other than PCs. Exactly. Right? No, exactly. exactly. But they have to accept the fact that the PC is now... It effectively already a minority of computing devices. Yep. And that it's only going to shrink. Yep. And that there's, you know, there's money to be made there for years and years to come. Um, but, but it's not, there's no growth. Right. But there's no growth. Exactly. Ben Thompson, people can read your website at strategery.com. Yes. S T R A T E C H E R Y.com. Or they could just Google Ben Thompson. With, yes, it is the first result. Which so with people a P, when I first started with a P. Yes, with a P. So people were irritated that I that the title of my site was Strategy by Ben Thompson. Um in you know, like if you look at the top yeah. of the browser bar. But it 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 that's Ben Thompson is way too common of a name. Like I had yeah. to play every trick in the book. That's pretty good. That's pretty good. Uh and and uh they could also find you on Twitter at, at uh Monk Bent M O N K B E N T. Good Twitter feed. And uh, last but not least, your new podcast. Uh, yes, well, the the what the the site the site is actually up there. It's it's a pretty brutal website. Yeah. I have one post 
I have one pack, one podcast posted so we can get into iTunes, but exponent.fm, E-X-P-O-N-E-N-T.fm. There you go. Thanks. Good show. Cool.